hard to believe that if the if the tone wasn't so uh if the tone had just been a little more surreal and a little less grounded, mm-hmm. uh, I think I would have bought more. Like the whole the scene with the rental car and the yeah, yeah that 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 it doesn't even strike me as a false note, but it, it's just it seems kind of in a different key than the rest of the film. Yeah, <laughs> like they like they felt like they needed to punch up that dramatic moment like that much further, and it, it, it's it's such a heightened moment. Uh, nothing else in the film really resembles it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's true. But it doesn't hurt. I mean, it just, I, I, believe, I can accept it. It's funny that you bring up Bavarian Sound Studio, because I, I saw that you uh, reviewed uh, Outer Space recently. Oh, yeah. invoked the title there. I love Outer Space. Yeah, Outer, like, Outer yeah. Space is fantastic. Had you seen the entity, the uh, the Barbara Hershey film that they're using the footage from? Yeah, see, no, I, I looked it up and I found out it was from the entity, but I had never seen the entity so I I couldn't tell if he had if it was just a couple quick scenes that he had filmed and then damaged himself or what was going on there. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you wouldn't. I I don't think if you even knew the. I, I know the entity well. It's like you probably would not spot the entity in it. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely manipulated, but yeah, I mean, it's you should see the entity at least once in your life. It's not perfect, but it has some it has some compelling moments. It's it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, I think. I think it showed up on your uh, your horror list, uh, all the listener picks. Yeah, I think maybe Jim voted for it. I know Jim liked it. Yeah. Um, someone voted for it, at the very least. I, I appreciate you not groaning when my last house on the left made the list. Oh, I know. Well, that, I, I feel like, I feel like, I mean, there are, there are plenty of films I don't like that end up on the list that I just, I felt like it was against the spirit of the thing to groan in any way. <laughs> At the, even the films we didn't like, we tried, I think, um, both me and Gabe sort of tried to sort of at least yeah. say what made it special or interesting. I appreciated that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I told Jim that, and Jim was like, I would have groaned. Yeah, oh, no, Jim, Jim is, <laughs> Jim can't not groan. Jim, yeah. wants, Jim, we got an email from someone who's like, yeah, you should do that with other genres. And I really don't know if that could, if that's a, like a format that could work with other genres. No, I don't think so. I mean, what do you do that for comedies yeah. or dramas? I mean, I don't know. I thought the horror, I, I enjoyed it. I liked the Romero episode too. I don't think I've talked to you since then, but no. I enjoyed that. Oh, thank you. Um, I, 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 I don't know if anyone mentioned it to you, but, uh, what is it called? His second Romero's second feature. There's always vanilla. There's always vanilla. Um, is available on DVD. I don't know if you. Oh, it, it is. Sounded like yeah. It's it's a bonus feature on the season of the witch DVD from Anchor Bay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, it's it's not. It's interesting, but it's not good. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's not. It's not. It's 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 worth seeing once just to see like what his career could have been had it you know. <laughs> Had that made money, we might not have anything else that he did. Right. Like, given, given, given the amount of, uh, given, if I had more time, I would have definitely, uh, tried harder to see that one. If only yeah. because the synopsis sounded like, it sounded very similar to the synop- the plot synopsis of Martin. Yeah, I, you know, and I remember you saying that, I don't, I don't, I, Martin's my favorite film of his, and it didn't really remind me of Martin. It reminded me more of, like... Kind of like a post, like like post the graduate kind of like youth comedy yeah. or something. It's it's kind of innocuous and kind of I mean very little remains in my memory of it. I, the guy that is like the young, 
Seymour Casellish kind of young seducer from Season of the Witch is the lead in it. Oh, okay. Um, it's like one of the other, it's like one of the two films you'd see that guy in. Sure. Um, but it's yeah, it's not really anything. Like you should see it once. Um, so Tarkovsky, before we even get started, I mean, did you, I, I? I saw some of your reviews or uh, Twitter comments. Did you did you hate all of it except Ivan's childhood? No, not at all. I don't. I didn't hate any of it. I, okay. it's, I, I just feel so in over my head. It's, it's one of those. So do I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. It's, we don't have to, we're not going to be, this won't be the most intellectual <laughs> of all Tarkovsky discussions, maybe. Sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, even movies, I didn't even finish nostalgia because nostalgia is so slow. Oh yeah. Um, I think, I think the thing I read was that Tarkovsky himself called nostalgia tedious, which is, <laughs> if, if, you know, that's one of my favorite ones, but I was, I went out, uh, I went out for drinks with someone that really had way too many drinks and he could barely speak. But when I mentioned nostalgia, he's like, that's a terrible movie. So he, even like in the fog of his like <laughs> alcohol days, he was like, Oh, he hated nostalgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no, I was like watching nostalgia and I just could not make head or tails of like, how one scene connected to the next or like what the emotional journey was supposed to be or like who the people were in relation to each. Like I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't make sense of any of it, but like every five minutes I said, Oh Jesus, that's beautiful. Look at this. Like I would, I would just tap Regina and be like, look at this. This is amazing. Yeah. That's kind of how I am with mirror, which is my favorite of his films, but it's a film that I, if you asked me to synopsize this for a thousand dollars, I would not get that thousand dollars, but like, I love it. It's, it, it's, he's tricky to talk about sometimes because like what he's doing is, well, we'll get into this with the talk, but like, you know, he's, he's using imagery to evoke like a nostalgic kind of impression, but it, it, it's hard to really get it to all tied together as a coherent story. And I don't even know if that's always the goal. Yeah. I imagine it isn't because from Ivan's childhood, if he wanted to tell a coherent story, he can. Oh yeah. Um, are um, you recording? I am recording. All right, cool. Um, I just uh, – I, I figured uh, we would do it basically the same way we did the last one. Um, we would just sort of start off with Tarkovsky. I imagine this conversation won't go on as long. Uh, <laughs> Probably not. Um, and then I'm sure we'll we'll work our way into things we watched recently. OK. Yeah. Actually, since last time I talked to you, I went to the New York Film Festival. I saw like 18 films. Oh, wow. Um, I, I have a few that I checkmarked as ones I thought I should mention. Um, Inherent Vice I saw, which I loved, but I don't even know where to begin with that one. Yeah. Um, that's probably better to just wait. Yeah, sure. Um, um, I, want, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, Tarkovsky's films. Sure. Uh, um, which is, how, how do Tarkovsky's films make you feel as you're watching them? Um... How do they make me feel? Uh, kind of, I guess. I guess contemplative, maybe. Um, like I get lost in in the mood and in the images. Um, I'm not always wrapped up in it in a dramatic sense, but there's all these details um, that I, I just find really moving or evocative. Uh, in a way, it's almost kind of like how I feel with certain Terrence Malick films, where it's like. It evokes something that, I, I guess, the, if the aim is to invoke a sense of nostalgia, uh, at best, it does work that way for me. Not all of them work that way for me, but the ones that I respond to the most, um, there's just like a texture. There's 
there's a certain kind of dreamy quality that I really find very pleasurable. Um, but it's not a film. They aren't films that I, I, I go home after a long day's work and put on because their, their pacing is so deliberate that if you're not in the mood for them, you can kind of zone out. Yeah. I, honest, I, I, I worry that I'm not going to revisit these because they're the kind of films I think would just keep getting better every time I revisit them. Yeah. Would, now, once I'm no longer like, you know, while I was watching the mirror at first, yeah. I thought there was no connected tissue at all in the mirror. And I was right. like, oh, this is heaven. This is great. Every scene is jaw-dropping and interesting for all the reasons he said. Yeah, very contemplative. In fact, a, a, a problem I have a lot when I'm watching Tarkovsky's movies is I find my mind wandering to other parts of my life. And then I realize mm-hmm. that, like, I don't know what just happened the last five minutes of the movie because I've just been <laughs> yeah. thinking and not reading the subtitles. Um, but, like, every – you know, all those first scenes in the mirror are really striking. That first scene in the mirror with the – speech therapy and you see that shadow of the microphone that is you know yeah. like at first you're like oh my god i see the boom and then you're like well there's no way that uh, that obvious framing like that's the boom he clearly meant a shadow of a microphone there but for what purpose it's the context of that scene is never really uh, established throughout the rest of the film at least not that i saw well i think that that's supposed to be and uh, he he said that like nothing in the in mirror was meant to be read as symbolic, which I, I find really hard to, to fathom. But I, how I read that scene is, you know, the child through some kind of hypnosis, the the, the speech uh, difficulties he's having become clear that he can speak clearly, and I, I think that that's meant to kind of suggest that. Now we're communicating clearly, and this is what is going to be communicated. Like it's 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 just like unblocking something um, through a kind of hypnosis or a kind of trance state. So it's not that so, the characters in that scene are characters in the rest of the film. It's sort of a uh, it's it's sort of a very expressionist kind of way of letting you know what the film is going to be like. That's how I take it. Yeah, I mean, I could be wrong. It's it's Mirror is definitely the most ambiguous and most experimental of all the films. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I read that that scene. Um, and that opening with the mother on the uh, you know on on the fence as as the doctor arrives, I I, I still think is one of the most beautiful sequences in his whole filmography. <laughs> There's mo- <laughs> it's it's utterly gorgeous. I mean, the the thing about Tarkovsky is the. The reason – I mean not the core reason. There's actually a lot um, that is really interesting and, and good about his mo- – there's a lot of interesting and good about Tarkovsky's films, I <laughs> I said. Um, <laughs> only one of the most uh, respected and beloved filmmakers in uh, history. Um, but yeah. it's it's not just that he they're beautiful but empty images. There's a lot that's going on there. But um, his films are never uh, – uh, uh, saying they're never a slog might be – inaccurate but they're never um they're, they never seem punishing um because what you're seeing is always so beautiful yeah well do you know who was a big fan you might already read this but ingmar bergman was a really yes. big fan of tarkovsky i yeah i and, certainly believe that i think ingmar bergman uh not as not as slow moving no no what, what he envied was the ease at which tarkovsky moved into like a dreamlike state yeah and i think that bergman's own films you know, they, I mean, they had that imagery like Wild Strawberries. They had that before. I mean, they were an influence on Tarkovsky, but Tarkovsky maybe took it further than Bergman had originally. I think things like Persona 
you know, are, are certainly as radical as, as Mirror, but I think that he, he took a lot of influence from Tarkovsky. And the later Tarkovsky films even bring in some of Bergman's people after the Soviet Union um, just would not allow him to work any further. And he left to work. His last two films were made with Erlen Josephson, one of Bergman's regulars, and I think Sven Nikvist shot The Sacrifice. So Bergman's uh, whole troop kind of took Tarkovsky in when he was no longer able to work in his own country. So the, the, the mutual admiration went even so far as to help him professionally make his last film as he was dying. Yeah. So, man, the, yeah, the mirror, every scene is beautiful. And, of course, there's that, there's that thing that sometimes happens uh, for me when I'm watching a Tarkovsky movie where, where I... It's it's they're obviously they're not special effects driven movies, but sometimes there are moments where I don't know how they did it. Like that single gust of wind that blows through the field as the doctor is leaving. Helicopter. A helicopter. <laughs> kind of a mundane reason, but yeah, that's how they. Did so the, do it. was it like off frame a helicopter like dipped down um, enough so it moved the the field and then it dipped I, back up. I believe so. I think that's how they did that. Yeah, that's so good. It's just, it, yeah. it's, oh my God, it's such an amazing image. Did you, did you notice that shot where the boy is framed in the doorway, kind of almost silhouetted by light? Um, um, yeah, I mean, it, are you, when he sees that the barn is on fire? Yeah, I think that's the shot. Yeah. It, 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 do you think, I can't imagine Steven Spielberg watching. Close Encounters? Her. Do you think that that's a coincidence that that shot looks exactly like the Close Encounter shot? Uh, I'm, it, it could be a coincidence. I mean, I'm sure Steven Spielberg has it was a student of film and has seen so many of these films. But uh, well, well, actually, I don't know exactly when did Demir come out. It, it came out in uh, was it 1975, maybe? Okay, so like it came out what like three years before Close Encounters? At least, yeah. I mean, it came out before Jaws. I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, trying to trying to figure out intent and or like did they was that a purposeful thing can be so hard because then also it's just like well what's a what's something that you do well you frame people what do you frame people with well there's hallways yeah. and doorways <laughs> like <laughs> yeah i mean i i don't i don't think it, I, it it could be a coincidence as much as like the likelihood of an homage i just right. i just it cracks me up when i see it that it's so it's so close yeah yeah time. especially because in the in close encounters it's sort of that fiery light that's uh going through and i think he is i think the light that's coming through the door is from the fire so like so as i was saying like so watching the mirror there's all these scenes that they're very dreamlike and when you're watching them it feels like you're dreaming in that you are sort of following it on there's like sort of an emotional continuity but you can't at least my experience watching the mirror was i couldn't quite remember what was the scene leading up to this or what where did i get how did i get here Um, like there's just that long, after that, there's, um, some more black and white, uh, scenes that are more sort of, uh, expressly surreal of the woman washing her hair and the, and the water falling through the ceiling and the, and the pieces of the ceiling falling down in Mm -hmm. super slow motion. And then it cuts to one side of a phone conversation someone's having with their mother as a camera very, very slowly pushes through this apartment um, which has an Andre Rublev poster in it. Oh, I know. <laughs> that was actually his, uh, they rebuilt that to be, was it his original house or his father's house? But even uh, even the uh, the crops outside were planted a year before they shot it to uh, recreate the look of, I guess, a, 
the outside of the house he remembered in childhood. Like it's it's very specifically drawing from uh, his own past. Um, even the poetry on the soundtrack is all of his father's poems. Um, and I guess his father left the family when he was young, and then you know the mother worked in some kind of printing press environment. So it it has so many autobiographical elements that I think. Um, I think he was a little self-conscious about making it. And some of his old collaborators that worked on things like Andre Rublev were like, man, this is just too self-indulgent. I can't work on this. Like, and he had to get new people really? to work on it. And uh, the government wanted to stop it from even coming out because they just felt like, you know, it was like this, it, it wasn't for the people. It was like a bourgeois aesthetic kind of thing that was, um, it was, it was too incoherent for the masses and therefore it might not, be permissible for the general public. Sure. So it was, yeah, but it's funny to think about it. Cause like all of his films in Russia, uh, were Soviet union, uh, you know, where, um, they ran into government censorship problems because of the experimental and, or the spiritual aspects of it. Like there was concerns that it would be just bad for the country for these things to come out. Like, in, like mirror was rejected. I think he tried to get that made maybe after Ivan's childhood, um, under a different script title, but they were just like, that's just too, it's just too out there. We can, you know, do something else. It's, 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 it's always funny to hear stories of, of left-wing censorship. Uh, yeah. if you, if you follow Hollywood history, it's, it's always the other way around. It's always like the religious right or whatever. Yeah. It's um, the opposite with him. It, it, yeah. I, I read something about Ivan's childhood where like when I was at, uh, I think con film festival, like the Italian press, they were like, "Oh, it's it's all it's way too bourgeois. <laughs> it's like all these bourgeois dream sequences, and te- instead of being uplifting and for the people, like, yeah, which is the strangest thing about. It. I mean, and and those dream sequences are what kind of elevate it beyond like a mere propaganda film. I mean, th- that's what makes it a great film is that that extra. And what's funny because like you look at Ivan's childhood, and it's like, yeah." Uh, on a narrative level, it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, feel good for the little war hero kind of story, but Tarkovsky just uses it as an excuse to like explore the same stuff he gets into with mirror. Like as far as like using imagery from his dreams and from childhood to evoke a feeling of nostalgia. I read, I read his autobiography. Uh, well, most of it, it's, you talk about slogs, <laughs> like, uh, well, because I'll get back to why, but like, uh, but he says like when making that film, um, that's what kind of sowed the seeds for his approach to Mirror, as far, far as I think like certain certain ways he framed location, like certain images that he used uh, for the dream sequences in Ivan's childhood, like that got him on that on that idea of like, well, can I make a whole film like that? Do I have to even have a grounded story? Um, but yeah, I. On the on the last bonus episode I did with uh, Gabe Powers, we were um, talking about we had uh, listeners uh, send in their you know top ten uh, horror films. Uh, Gabe was talking about how for Fult- for the Beyond, Fulci wanted to make something that was pure cinema that went beyond narrative and went beyond you know characters and went beyond co- coherence and was just pure cinema. And I I feel that way a lot about a lot of Tarkovsky's films like The Mirror. Yeah. Yeah, one one thing he said, which I found really kind of astounding, and I don't know if he could even really be seriously saying that, but he he was saying that um, you know the films weren't really designed to entertain, but they were designed almost to prepare one for death. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he was saying. Like just like to put one in kind of like a higher state of grace was like ultimate aim. Like they weren't just they were just trying to like make you you know 
escape your troubles. They were like trying to aim for like the uh, not even just great art, but like great art that like changed one's kind of like belief system or makeup. And it's it's I mean it's kind of why his films. You know, he's a beloved filmmaker, but he's controversial. I mean, even within like I have you know maybe ten or eleven uh, different film reference books around here. There's not like a unanimous consensus like all the films are great. Like Ivan's Childhood always gets off the hook, but like you know if, things like Stalker or Nostalgia or The Sacrifice or even Solaris, like they get attacked in some quarters for being like too ponderous or too slow or too, uh, you know, like like too uh, like. I don't want to say pretentious because that's not really what they're saying, but just that the they become so self serious that they become uh, unapproachable in a way for people and, yeah. in a way that's not fun. Right. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I, I saw that you had seen Interstellar recently, and Tar- Tarantino compared Interstellar to Tarkovsky and to Malick, and I watched Interstellar with that in mind and I, I, outside of the fact that they have conversa- conversations on a spaceship I'm trying to think what he was really saying about Tarkovsky I can, I, it's film. hard for me to, to think of a less appropriate <laughs> I mean I think it probably I think Interstellar is probably closer to Tarkovsky than it is to like say well no not it's probably closer to that than it is to like Flash Gordon <laughs> like oh, yeah. on well, the I on would, the grand scale that. of sci-fi, but like yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, actually, I mean, one of the things I liked about Interstellar uh, was that it's so ruthlessly paced, uh, yeah. and there's so much. And usually, when we, you have a science fiction world, there's just so much like world building bullshit that you always have to slog through, right. and, and or there's just like some. Uh, yeah, there's just like some monologue that one character has that gets the audience up to speed and Interstellar completely disperses with all of that. Like all the relevant details you sort of pick out as the story goes, but you never really do find out what, what year it is or where exactly it is or what shape the rest of the world is in Yeah, um, because it's just not relevant to the story. And like it's and it's just like ruthlessly edited to the point where it's like, all right, you're about to go into a two year sleep. And then the next time you and you don't even see him go into sort of the, the cryogenic hypersleep. And the next time you see him, the two years have passed and they've all woken up and there hasn't been a scene of them waking up. It's just it's just like, well, we accept you. We accept that the audience knows that they will wake up when they get to Saturn and that since they're at Saturn now, we don't have to bother with showing them wake up, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's not not that all scenes like that are, you know, like, there's a scene like that in Alien, but that's all about sort of, like, establishing a mood and a tone and stuff like that. But a lot of the times, I mean, I can imagine if Spielberg had made Interstellar like he originally wanted to, like, there would just be, like, well, that's where you put the money. Like, that's that's where the, that's why you make a sci-fi movie, is so you can show all the spaceship stuff, and you can show those big doors opening and the smoke coming out and them waking up from hypersleep, like... And oh, yeah. Christopher Nolan just has no interest in any of that. And it's just it's like, like yeah. and it's like Solaris is like, oh, that's that ruthlessly paced is not how I would put it. Well, it I mean, depends on how you use ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm sure for some, an, a nine minute sequence of a character we never see again uh, driving on the highway <laughs> would be considered ruthless. Yeah, no, that's that's a scene I always think of whenever I try to describe to people that haven't seen that version of Solaris, like why, you know, it would be not for all taste. The first time I watched Solaris, 
uh, was back in 2001, I guess. And I watched maybe 30 minutes of it, and then I slept for 12 hours. <laughs> and then I woke up and I finished it. I thought, it was great. But it, it definitely lulled me into a state where I fell asleep. And the, I forget when the second time I saw it all in one go. But uh, but yeah, it's... I mean, and I knew that going into it, that it was going to be a slow-paced film. I, I remember inter- I did an internship at the Criterion Collection when I got out of college. And uh, we, they were working on Andrei Rublev uh, there. And I remember the, um, the guy doing the QC on it was saying that oh, I don't really even like this film that much. I like Stalker and Solaris more. And I, so I, I hadn't seen any of his stuff at the time. So I, I just saw images from uh, Andrew Rublev and I thought they were br- beautiful, but I, you know, it was like a, what, like three and a half hours or something. It was like some really intimidating length to, to watch it. Did, was, was that one that you skipped for this or did you watch yes, it? Yes, I ended up skipping Andrew Rublev. There's sequences in that I think that you would really uh, be drawn to, but it is a really exhaustive length. And I know that you're not always uh, crazy about like period films also, although it's, I don't know what you'd compare to. It also has some animal cruelty in it that I, I have a hard time stomaching. I, uh, um, I, I mean, I love animal cruelty, so that's not a problem for me, but, yeah, um, no, I, <laughs> but, no, but I, I'm, I'm sure I would like it. I, there, I, you know, I like I liked the parts of nostalgia I saw. I couldn't get through the whole thing. I I'm, I only have like 38 minutes left, so I imagine at some point yeah. I'll just return and watch the final 38 minutes. But well, if you love the scene of nine minutes of car driving, you're going to love the seven or eight minutes of a guy taking a candle back and forth across uh, the screen. Well, that, um, what was crazy? Okay, so what's crazy <laughs> about uh, Solaris is all that car driving. Like it was interest. It was kind of interesting. It was like okay, so. We're kind of following this character now, and we're not getting anything, so it's really just drawing out. Okay, so he's kind of slowing down the pace. Like whenever, whenever something happens in a film I don't expect, I always give it the benefit of the doubt of it at least being interesting yeah. before I declare it annoying. Yeah. And then eventually I was just like, all right, well, this – it almost feels like Tarkovsky is trolling the audience at this point because of how long this scene is going on. But I, I it never totally lost me um, yeah. because it was, it was sort of interesting – because a little bit like Interstellar, you never find out exactly where uh, the the scenes on Earth are. Um, so I was like watching the highway and like seeing all these like Asian road signs and trying to figure out like, where is he? Um, yeah. And so at yeah. the point, it's, it kind of seemed like uh, that was that that was very long. But at that point, I, I had already watched the mirror. I'd already, uh, you know, I, I was prepared for that from Tarkovsky. Um, yeah. And then in retrospect towards the end of the film i kept, my mind kept flashing back to that scene and that scene took on such emotional weight um after sort of seeing what a transformative process uh the i can't remember the main character's name kelvin chris kelvin yeah chris kelvin uh, after seeing all the like sort of the, the transformative effect that spending all that time near solaris had on kelvin i sort of retroactively applied that to that astronaut who was sort of the first to experience um, uh, the effects of being near Solaris. And I, and it sort of just, it took on a very sad sort of lost uh, tone. To, I mean, it was already kind yeah. of lost, but like it, it actually retroactively, uh, it gained weight to it. And that was not a scene I was expecting to gain much out of in retrospect, but it, it ended yeah. up, now that I think about it, like it's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, no, I, I don't have a problem with it. I think I think some of its purpose is also Tarkovsky is one of the only directors that would ever think to do this, but he gives he gives the audience room 
to think about what they've seen and to, to process all of it and get ready for the next part of the film. And he'll give you that time. Um, that's something that films don't usually do because they, they fear the audience getting restless or bored, but because Tarkovsky is just so confident in what he's doing and, you know, because his images are always, you know, almost always really gorgeous. Uh, he just, he just takes that time that almost any other filmmaker I can think of would probably eliminate. Yeah. Even, even the ones that make slower paced films. I mean, he's, he's, he really kind of set a standard. I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole genre now called slow cinema. It's not a very creative name. <laughs> um, that, you know, encompasses, Directors like Bellatar or Lissandro Alonso, even um, to some extent, um, somewhere that uh, Sofia Coppola film. Sure. I think on some level she was aiming, not that that really, you know, I mean, however well that does or doesn't work, I think on some level she was aware of that wave of films. And that, you know, that comes from like the Romanian films and other territories. It, it, it's, it, I was thinking about this. Because Tarkovsky, to my mind, is where that style really starts, like that really, really slow pace. Because, um, you know, foreign films that used to sell in big numbers for Americans, it was, you know, it tended to be things that were kind of kind of energetic and flashy and sexy. And, you know, it could be the French New Wave, or it could be Bergman, it could be Fellini. Like, it could be things that are, like, doing things more, uh, more adult than what was going on in Hollywood. But once Hollywood kind of absorbed those, you know, that freedom, uh, foreign films became harder and harder sell. And it's almost like there's this whole wave that really kind of aggressively rejects, like, the American-style escapist, fast-paced storytelling with these, like, punishingly slow tempos. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's a very niche kind of segment of, of, of cinema but it, it is definitely out there and and tarkovsky is really i think the primary instigator of it i don't know that they all have his kind of spiritual aims um but it's i don't know i, I mean have you I, I kind of yeah. so so when i was watching it, i was trying to think of this in terms of punishing because an episode of this podcast i was not on was the michael haneke episode yeah and yeah. that was because one of the fil- the films we we're going to talk about was code unknown and i just couldn't watch it I just found yeah, it I totally unwatchable. It was really frustrating to me. And I think – I don't know. Michael 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 Haneke is a provocateur and he wants to provoke the audience in that way and and I, maybe punish the audience in certain ways uh, that sure. makes them think. Um, yeah. And, and I think in retrospect, probably the point of Code Unknown is that there's this sort of – at the first scene, there's this event – in which the lives of four or five people all intersect and then they all go about their lives and the effect the event has on them is some of some of the people have it has no effect some of it has a little effect whatever and it's mm-hmm. this idea of um challenging an audience's natural i mean this is my interpretation of a film i didn't finish but like right. <laughs> it, it like it felt like maybe it was like challenging the audience's natural inclination to like build narratives out of uh out of uh, lives which are not actually don't actually take place in three acts structure that lives just are sort of messy and chaotic and and constantly ongoing um yeah that that could be there's another film he made that is similar to that called 71 fragments in a chronology of chance i might be misremembering the title but i believe yeah. that's the title um but yeah that i mean that kind of 
all these kind of like disparate kind of episodes that may or may not kind of connect. Code Unknown is maybe my favorite of his films, but I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, and it, with that one, it, the thing is, I don't always, and this is maybe not very brainy of me, I don't always look for the deeper theme to tie it all together with a film like that sometimes. Sometimes I just take it as sequence to sequence, and if those sequences engage me or, or move me like as self-contained episodes, uh, the cumulative effect of it uh, I find really powerful, but I don't always have, I mean, I couldn't tell you yes or no to like what the meaning of code unknown ultimately is. I just know that there are sequences like when Julia Pinoche is harassed by these teenagers on a bus or something like there are these moments that are like so visceral and intense that I just can't shake them off. But I, I, I appreciate that it's more vague than something like funny games where it's clearly uh, lecturing me about how violent entertainment is bad for me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that part of it I really find uh, awful. <laughs> I, I I found I found Code Unknown to be hard. I found it hard to be compelled by it on a moment to moment basis, just because I think Michael Haneke's style is very purposefully kind of flat. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I never ever ever felt like Tarkovsky was trying to punish me. Like there's a certain yeah. warmth from his films, even though they're very intellectual and they all feature, uh, you know, even something like Ivan's childhood has characters sort of philosophizing at each other in kind of very heady ways. Like it never, it, it never felt disconnected from an emotion to me. No. Well, the, in, in case you never see it, Andre Rublev, um, the story of that film, it, it's about this icon painter uh, who's living through this really horrific time period in, in, in Russia's history. And a lot of it is him kind of going through this world of violence and rape and chaos and, and murder and trying to make these works of beauty to like really move people uh, towards kind of a more positive spiritual kind of way. Like he doesn't even want to, you know, depict hell and things that, to scare people like he wants to make people feel really good but he's just surrounded by darkness uh and he eventually just takes a vow it sounds like he can't take it anymore um just how the world is and then he meets a young boy played by the same actor that plays ivan in ivan's childhood um who uh creates a, a large bell <laughs> having no background in how to make one, but just through sheer faith in himself that he can make it, that he makes this bell. And this 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 act so moves uh, Andrei Rublev that he decides to continue painting again because he sees that, you know, faith ultimately can achieve some kind of miracle. And so he decides to keep painting. And, and so the last sequence is like all of these... Uh, the, the whole film's in black and white, but then like it ends with like this like series of like color images of like his most famous uh, paintings. But I think that it's all meant to be a metaphor for the artist's place in society. And like what I think he ultimately wants to do is uh, make make art in a culture that may or may not be hostile to what he's trying to do, but that ultimately affirms a better feeling within people. I think that that seems to be the goal of all the films, whether or not I, I, they, I yeah. believe that. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the color in black and white, all of his films have, at least all the films that I saw, I assume all of his mm -hmm. films, yeah. other than Isaac Ivan's childhood, which is all in black and white. 
yeah. have uh, it go back and forth between black and white and color. Did, yeah. I had I had trouble discerning. I I don't I didn't believe that like black and white meant reality like they were different levels of reality. I didn't it didn't seem like one was flashbacks and one was present day. It didn't seem like yeah. I, I had trouble distinguishing like a a a, a sort of a codified uh, reason for why uh, certain parts of the mirror were in black and white in color, certain parts of Solaris were in black and white, so certain were in color. It, do you know anything about like why like did Tarkovsky have specific reasons for going back and forth? I don't think so. I mean, I think he just was going off of off of a, an aesthetic choice. Um, I, I and I, don't quote me on that. I mean, I could be I could be wrong, but I, nothing I've read suggests that that was um, trying to cue the audience in like this is a dream or this is the past or, or whatever. I mean, clearly in, in Mirror there are sequences that are meant to be past tense or meant to be. Uh, you know the the, the protagonist 's memory of the past right. that, that black and white you know does trigger something in terms of a change in the time frame but um with something like Solaris, I think it 's just an aesthetic choice i um, I, I really enjoyed i mean part of what makes it work is that his films are not very color vibrant in the first place um right. there are parts of the mirror that are utterly beautiful in that respect, certainly like the first scene at the farmhouse. Oh, well, yeah. um, but for the most part, the colors in, you know, like Solaris are, are very dulled. Um, yeah. And so the, it makes the it makes the back and forth less jarring um, than it would be in like, say, I don't know, like Memento has black and white and color sequences. And and yeah. and, and it feels very specific, like a very specific choice. And they feel very like distinct parts of the film. Um, and I, I kind of liked it because it also sort of just adds to a general instability, which is sort of the thing you were talking about with with uh, with Bergman, where he sort of envied Tarkovsky's ability to, to slip into a dream. I mean, there are dream sequences in Ivan's childhood. I think in Solaris, there's a dream sequence. Um, yeah. And and the phone calls, you know, is talking about where or where what you see where it's you hear one side of a phone conversation and the camera's just pushing through an apartment. He's talking about I had a dream. Uh, from when I was a kid, and he describes the last scene we just saw. So, yeah. Um, so, like, there's there are dream sequences in it, but also in the middle of what is quote-unquote reality, things will just sort of go off the rails for a moment. I mean, especially in nostalgia, when he when he's visiting that the man who walks into the, the pool with the candle. Yeah. There are, I, <laughs> I mean... I was I was watching that scene and I would just constantly forget how he got there or what was happening or what the previous scene because there would just be a moment where there would just be like a miniature of the town and the camera would just push into it as rain was falling on it or suddenly there would just be this huge – like he'd be in a small you know sort of cottage but then there would just be this huge opening of this giant empty like almost warehouse setting where everything's sort of derelict and there's and there's just water falling through the ceiling everywhere – yeah, he loves water falling through the ceiling. Oh, well, I mean, he makes he makes good use of it. <laughs> As, it's it's in like more than half the film, and there's there's not like I you know none of these movies I other than Ivan's childhood I have a pretty strong idea of sort of his mode of operation and like choices he makes and and why he makes them. Um, yeah, there, there are certain parts that are just of you know generally evocative in the way his later films are, like the dream sequences that Ivan has where with the horses and the, and the apple cart, the overflowing apple cart where 
uh, it doesn't seem, you know, it's not a specific reference to anything in the film. It's just sort of, it gives this emotion. Um, yeah. And I think that that might even be the, I don't remember if that was actually an image from his own life, but it feels like that, those are the kind of details that he brings yeah. to it that would be from his own life trying to, trying to instill, it, it's, it's odd because like, it's a very, I don't know what the word would be like maybe presumptuous kind of strategy. Like if I, if I use images that make me think of my childhood and those feelings of how good I felt, then someone else in the audience is going to have that same association and that's going to, that's going to bring them into that same feeling. And that's what I'm going to do. Well, I mean, I, I, I've always been a huge uh, fan of specificity in movies. And I think I, and I think the more, I don't necessarily think the more specific, I, I I think I I think at some point I probably used to say the more specific something is ultimately the more universal it becomes. And mm-hmm. after watching Tarkovsky's movies, I do not believe that is true because <laughs> there is a point where it's no longer universal. But yeah, like if 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 the if the like if you look at mirror the mirror as an experimental film, and if the experiment mm-hmm. was well, what if instead of um, thinking of all these potent images that I have in my memory from my childhood and then trying to wait, trying to find a way to tie those into an actual narrative. Um, something I always think about in terms of that is, um, just the fact that in both the pianist and all the way back to repulsion, Mm -hmm. Polanski has really striking images of potatoes sprouting. (laughs) Yes. I, I always think of like, Oh, clearly at some point Polanski was a child and his mom made him like eat a sprouted potato. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that had to be a very enduring image for him to, to sure. last all those years. And like, what if instead of trying to find a context for those memories I have, like the story of the pianist or, or something like that. What if I just made a film out of those images and memories and like it, you know, it's, it's sort of a backwards in a backwards way, it's kind of similar to almost like what Linkletter does with uh, did in Boyhood, mm. but uh, you know Linkletter again. He he eventually did succumb to at least if if not a, a strict narrative he uh, with uh, strict arcs. He did at least succumb to having characters in the film. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you are you a fan of um, Terrence Malick beyond? Well, I, I remember when you talked about Tree of Life years ago. Are, do you consider yourself a fan of his work, or what's your take on him? Um, I, I, Badlands is one of my favorite movies ever. Okay. Uh, I love Tree of Life. Tree of Life felt this way to me. I mean, all the parts without – with not the parts with Sean Penn, but all the other parts right. that felt like it came from my childhood. Like, A Tree of Life was a very personal movie to me. I love Tree of Life. Yeah. Um, is it Days of Heaven? Yeah. Days of Heaven, I didn't like, um, but I saw it a long time ago, and I want to give it another shot. And then I haven't seen Thin Red Line, and I haven't seen New World, and I haven't seen uh, Beyond the Wonder to the, or To the Wonder. To the Wonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was listening to some podcast talking about Mirror, and they were comparing it to the Tree, uh, tree of Life, and I guess in a way they're both they're both using images of, of youth in a way that is very specific, but intended for a kind of more universal uh impact yeah um, i mean but tree of life tree of life seems tree of life seems downright conventional compared to the mirror but I, well but it brings in dinosaurs it's, it's got a much bigger scope <laughs> yeah yeah but 
just the fact that Tree of Life has characters in it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I mean, technically the mirror has characters, but you don't see the... Supposedly, so so one of the things that frustrated me about the mirror, uh, mm-hmm. to bring it all the way back around to the thing I was first talking about, yeah. was I loved the mirror before I realized there was actually supposed to be sort of a coherent story. And I guess I guess I don't necessarily even agree with that take that there's supposed to be a coherent story, but... I thought there, I thought it was basically just like Holy Motors without the framing device where literally there's no connection between scenes other than sort of an emotional continuity. Um, and then eventually characters started to prop up again and it was explained that the reason the same actress plays his ex-wife and his mother is that they look alike. And then at a certain point I began to feel like – Oh, okay. So I should be following what's going on, and then I was totally lost, and I couldn't connect the dots at all. I I don't think that a lot of first time viewers of that film necessarily connect all the dots, and I, I I I don't know that that's even necessary to get pleasure from it. But it, I I know that the the mind kind of wants to add it all up yeah. when you have those pieces that feel like they should be added. And, up. and also I, I mean, also I mean the other thing about the mirror is just. That not every scene is equally jaw dropping. I think. I think. Right. I think. I think the scene in the printing press is amazing. I think that the whole way all of that plays out is just beautiful. I think everything yeah. before that is beautiful, and then it's slowly like there's the scene where they're in someone's living room, and there's the guy from Spain, and that's I don't really care about that. <laughs> and there's there's a cut, yeah. and there's the scene where they're visiting. I guess the wife of the doctor of the. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know the scenes, yeah. and like that, that goes on like really long, and I, I didn't find that like if I found them equally captivated, each scene equally captivating as I found like the first fifteen minutes, I don't think yeah. I would have minded as much. But I, yeah. I did need like something. I needed something to grab onto <laughs> during those moments, and I was left with nothing. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I do love that. That is what that film is. It's just it's so specific. That it's yeah. a, that it can be alienating, but it also means that it's very personal, and that does come across. It doesn't come a, like it's it's almost it, it's so hard to put into words what makes um, his films different than like the thousands of bad college art films that have imitated him. That like right. everyone's seen like a film where someone just fucking shot a uh, rain like a. Uh, a close-up of a of a flower sprouting through a sidewalk, and then it sure. was, and then there was rain dripping down a window, and it was just there's just no connective tissue, and it's just like what this is just whatever, and like and then when you watch something like Nostalgia, you it's kind of like this is not that, but it's really hard to say why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Nostalgia is funny too because on some level. It's just about a guy that's homesick for the Soviet Union, but he got kicked out because he's just too radical a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, on some level, it's just the pining of an expat. And like it, it, the greater you know, philosophical bent to it, I don't know if I always pick up on that so much. It just seems like someone that like wants to go back, but he knows he can't go back. And, and he never did go back. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he died before ever returning to... Yeah, uh, he, he died tragically young from cancer. Yeah, yeah, and the, his autobiography was written around the time of that, like, I think right before Sacrifice was made, and it has that kind of tone of, like, it has kind of, like, a lecturing kind of tone to it, and it has, like, a very, uh, like, 
these are the ways that film should work and other ways are, are wrong if they're not, they're not serious. Like it, it gets a, he was a very self-serious artist yeah. and saw himself as a great artist. And that's, I remember hearing some story and I'm going to totally uh, paraphrase it. I don't remember exactly how it went, but like, I think I heard that he used to tell people that he got, he had gone to a fortune teller and uh, she had told him like, you will only make seven films, but they will all be masterpieces. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's not true, I don't want to know. Well, I, I just saw Whiplash today, and I think you will only make seven films, but they will all be masterpieces. I think what J.K. Simmons would say to that is that the, the there's nothing there's nothing worse for an artist to hear than good job. Yes. <laughs> like if that went to his head, <laughs> like I yeah. don't wonder he was self serious if he believed that. And it's, oh, yeah, that, no. that also sounds like it could be an apocryphal story, but totally, totally. But I mean, he definitely was someone that saw himself as, you know, and it, I mean, seriously, when you're making art where the government has a problem with it, you know, it, it can put a chip on your shoulder as far as how you see the work. And yet, you know, sure. also when like people like Ingmar Bergman are like your biggest fans, it's like, yeah, the ego could get out of control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some corners, he was kind of kind of lionized, especially in the Soviet Union, where there's really no one on his level at that time. Yeah. And it's funny, like, he has, in the first chapter of his autobiography, he had, he's quoting all these letters from uh, just people that wrote to him about Mirror. And it's like, he quotes both the good and the bad ones, because like, the good ones are like, how did you, I don't understand how you knew my life. Like, how did you know... How did you know my story? That is my story that you filmed. How did you know? Uh-huh. Like some of the people are connected with it so deeply that it scared them. And other people were just like, Comrade Tarkovsky, have you seen this film? It makes no sense. Like, no. What it, do, you, do you know what it means? Like, I don't know. I, I've talked to people. We don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, to, to any extent, like any good artist is going to draw from their life and try to find the evocative specific moments that are interesting and are going to hope that well, if I feel this way, like yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. if if you if you're a pianist and you're like, well, if I think this sounds good, then that probably means there's someone else out there that thinks it sounds good. That's that's just sort of what you have to do. And he just sort of took that to the most extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's what so let, let's go over the films that you saw. So you saw Ivan's Childhood, you saw Solaris, you saw uh, the Mirror, Mirror. You saw, and then you I saw. saw the first like hour and a like the first hour and ten and change of uh, nostalgia. Okay, so um, you did not see Stalker, no, or Andrei Rublev or The Sacrifice. Because it's not that many. Yeah. So what I do now because I've had so much trouble renting movies um, from like Amazon and stuff like that. The quality's mm-hmm. bad, or like the audio and vi- video goes out of sync and stuff. Oh, and it always okay. it's always the worst. So <laughs> my process is now. To spend the money and rent and rent stuff, but then just uh-huh. download a torrent. <laughs> so, because after watching uh, the one I love at, on off of iTunes and mm-hmm. having to pause it every thirty seconds so the audio and vi- video would go back in sync, like I was just oh like, "Well, I'm done with this. I'm just going to download a rip of a Blu-ray that someone has, and I'll still spend the money, so the filmmakers still get money." Yeah. Or whoever, you know, at this point, whoever owns the rights to Tarkovsky's movies, they still get their due money, but I actually get to watch the movie in the best possible form. Well, if you if you look online, um, all of Tarkovsky's features are available for free online. Um, really? Actually, even all of his short films, including his student films, are all... If you, if you search 
if you if you search a Google search like Tarkovsky Free Online or something like that, you'll find links to everything because uh, like more than is one that, person put it on is my that Facebook. Recent? <laughs> Uh, within the last year, I mean, I looked for it recently when I was, uh, you know, preparing for this. Cause I had never seen his student film. He did. Did you ever see the Killers? Not the, um, not the Killing, the Kubrick, but like the Killers. It was. It was made with. Um, there's two versions. Like I think Burt Lancaster. Yeah, the, uh, one version had like Lee Marvin. Yeah, and Reagan. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so Tarkovsky made that as a student film. Um, you can find it online. I think Criterion included it as a bonus feature on their release with both of the two feature versions of The Killers. Oh, interesting. But it's, it's inter- if you want to see uh, student film noir, Tarkovsky style. Oh, man. Um, it's, it's worth a look. I mean, it's definitely like a student film, and it doesn't have the boldness of his, even of Andre, yeah. uh, uh, even of uh, Ivan's childhood. But there's one sequence where... Um, the guy goes back into the kitchen where one of the uh, other people in the uh, in the diner is like gagged on the floor, and it's it's eerie. Like there's, you can already see that he's developing an eye even as a student sure. filmmaker. But my my, I wish I had known that at the time. Basically, the whole reason I told that story is to explain that I I downloaded a version of Stalker that had subtitles, but the subtitles were not English. So oh, okay. so I was planning on watching Stalker as well. Because um, I had always been interested in that film. It's inter- It's an interesting film. I, I when um when I was rewatching these, and I was like, I was concerned for you a little bit because I know that you, you know, in the past, like films like The House of the Devil or Somewhere or other films uh-huh. with like really ponderous kind of pacing. I know that you, you found them kind of tried your patience, and I wasn't sure. I mean, these have a much different intention, but they're you know at least as slow as Ty West or Sofia Coppola. Um, but given that those films, I know that your, your critique of them is always like, well, a film about boredom doesn't necessarily have to be boring. Mm -hmm. Um, did you feel like you could forgive that pacing in this instance because you could tell the intentions were different? Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, yeah, I, I don't necessarily have a, a problem with uh, slow movies in general. I tend to like economical movies, but I don't. Yeah. I don't necessarily have sort of a, uh, a a a philosophical problem with slow movies. I mean, in those two instances, I think just somewhere doesn't have a lot of content to it. It doesn't right. have a lot of depth. It's it's just a dull film about someone who's dull, and that just seems to me like a film not worth making. And then House yeah. of the Devil, I just think it what it tries to do is a slow burn and I just think that it doesn't know how to do that and it does it poorly. Yeah. Like I think I, like, you know, you, you think about a, a slow burn movie, you know, like it's about, it's, it's it, a slow burn movie. Isn't about a lot of time happening in between incidents. It's about a lot of the incidents that happen to build dread or tension or whatever. It's it, are sure. very subtle. Right. And it's possible, yeah. I mean, I only saw House of the Devil the one time, and I hated it so much. It's possible there was a lot of subtle stuff that I just didn't notice, but to me, I, it just felt like nothing was happening. Yeah, I watched it again recently, uh, around Halloween time, and it still has the same problems that I thought it had when I saw it initially. But I don't have a problem with nothing happening. I have a problem with what happens being kind of bad. Yeah, I don't know, I mean, so, but, so like Tarkovsky's film, number one, again, Nostalgia every five minutes. I was just, I was just gobsmacked. Like Jesus Christ, this is so beautiful. This is incredible. There'd just be 
just two characters would suddenly stop talking and the camera would push in to a bottle, like two, two, two giant, to do like empty wine bottles and, and just rain cascading over them. <laughs> and, and you would just be hearing the sound of the rain and it would, uh, he must find that kind of stuff soothing. There's that moment in Solaris where they put paper over the, uh, the vents. So it kind of sounds like rustling leaves. And yeah. you, you well, kind of get the feeling that that kind of natural um, ambient sound is very meditative for him. Well, because it happens a lot. What, did you? All right. I, I guess we're going to spoil the end of Solaris with this with this question. But yeah, when he returns to the house at the end, and he sees his father, but his father's kind of distracted, and you see the rain coming from within the house. And you and, and then it pulls back and you see that he's really only in an island within Solaris. Like he's only he's only on this other planet. Like he's not uh, he's not on Earth. He's in some version of his of his memory of home. Did you get the impression that the beginning was therefore not Earth either? Because we never see him take a spaceship. I mean, did you did you think that it was meant to be that the beginning was also meant to be on Solaris? Or is it just you because we know what his home looks like, we now have a context for him recreating it on that planet? To be honest, I didn't even consider, like, I feel kind of silly now, not even considering him still being on Solaris at the end. I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's actually what is intended. Sure, like, I mean, sure. I, I don't but, know that. No, I didn't think about that because I just thought, it's not like we see an aerial view of Earth um, before he goes to Solaris. No. So when it pulled back and you see his home is just this island surrounded by a giant ocean, I took that as uh, just more an expression of the emotion as, a, as opposed to actual literal fact. And maybe that meant that in this film, Earth is not the same as Earth as we think of it. Maybe it's post-ice caps melting and suddenly the ocean-to-land ratio has drastically changed. Maybe it's some other thing maybe yeah. maybe they call it earth but it's a science fiction world where earth is a different thing and they're not actually human beings or i don't know like yeah, i yeah. i just took it i mean at that point it was solaris was actually one of like i was i was expecting once i saw the mirror and i saw most of the nostalgia i was like well at least the hardest stuff is out of the way um because <laughs> yeah because that because those are just so and i you know i didn't i didn't see um what was what's his last film uh, the sacrifice. The sacrifice. Yeah, I didn't see that, but I just figured, like, well, Solaris, I know at least has a narrative through line, and it's about characters sure. and stuff. And but like Solaris also doesn't have the benefit of being as beautiful as those other two films. No, but it has it has shots like of that like underwater kind of vegetation and things that are really beautiful in a very kind of eerie way. Yeah, it doesn't no, have. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's good looking movie, but it's just it's not on the same level of, as. It's of the films I saw, it's actually the least attractive, and and yeah, and, and then it you know I was able to follow the plot, but then sort of towards the end, the the uh, what they determine is the result of the events. I mm-hmm. I didn't I couldn't follow what they were talking about. Like we the Earth now knows what love is and <laughs> stuff like that. I didn't understand what any of that was. So to be honest, like at the end. I was very lost. I, it certainly felt like I felt the, the journey of the story emotionally, but there is just a lot of these movies where I just had to come to accept the fact that I don't actually know what's happening or why. 
And that yeah. and the end of Solaris was definitely like that for me. But no, I didn't even think of him as still being on Solaris. It almost feels it almost feels like that would cheapen it for me to think of a movie like Solaris to have a kind of ironic ending that a Twilight Zone episode would have. Yeah. Well, I think I think if I'm remembering the, the story correctly, it, so they they communicated with the planet, and so the 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 visitors stopped appearing because they finally understood they finally understood the psychology of the human beings in a way that those vis- visitations uh, stopped. But so I guess that what what follows then is then him going down to the planet and kind of experiencing this kind of alternate reality. I, I, it's, it's a little fuzzy for me. I, I'd have to probably watch it again just to, to note all the, the, the story beats. But I, I, with his films, I don't always need everything to, to add up neatly. So I never really, it never really troubles me right. that I, even just trying to recount the ending, like I've seen I hope, a I number hope of times. I hope this episode isn't like incredibly frustrating for listeners. <laughs> Because <laughs> it is, because it's so hard to put this kind of thing into words. I mean, also, I hope we're not scaring away any listeners who haven't seen a Tarkovsky movie. Um, you gave me yeah. really good advice, which was start with Ivan's Childhood. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ivan's Childhood is a straightforward narrative film. Um, it's about a it's about a boy, a very small boy of like I don't know, he's like eight to twelve years old. Um, but uh, who sort of does reconnaissance and spy spy work for the Russian army um, because he's able to sort of slip past enemy lines and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's a really amazing movie. I mean, the boy who, who acts as Ivan, he's so good. And I guess, I guess part of that was he, he looks like he's eight, but he was actually apparently like 14 or something. He was just sort of a late bloomer, I guess. So, like you are looking at him as if he's an eight-year-old child, but he's actually, you know, uh, a little bit uh, older than that. But also, there's sort of the 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 way that Ivan's childhood works is that because he is so capable and he's such, you know, he his, all of his family were killed by the Nazis. It's a World War II film. I don't think I, I don't know if I told this. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of his family were killed by the Nazis, and he's just and he's just done so much for for the Russian army so far that. Um, you know, all these commanders and captains and lieutenants and stuff have tremendous respect for him and he's very hardened and he just talks like an adult. And the first thing I thought of was like Max Fisher <laughs> in Rushmore or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably in no small part because the the actor who plays Ivan looks just like Dirk from Rushmore. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, what it ends up doing is it ends up sort of telling this story about how all of the people involved are kind of like children – uh, and the way that sort of Wes Anderson movies work where the kids act like adults and the adults act like children and it's sort of about how the lines between the two are never clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all of the people in Ivan's childhood, whether they are – you know, there's like the there's like a 17-year-old sort of lieutenant um, who who's very skeptical of Ivan um, – and probably jealous of the respect that he gets being so much younger. Um, and the, and then there's this older lieutenant and then there's a couple other characters. And I have to admit, I got some of them confused. So there are certain points where I wasn't sure which character was which. 
And there's also uh, Masha, the uh, the nurse. Yes, but uh, the nurse, she seems a little outside of sort of what I'm talking about, where it's basically like they all kind of act like kids, and they mm-hmm. all kind of act like adults, and it's and they're all sort of in over their heads. I mean, that's I guess that's sort of where the Russian army was in World War II. They were just, uh, but it, but it, but it, so it ends up being this sort of story about, uh, like what war does to people, not in terms of just like hellish physical or mental um, sort of effects, but just sort of the position it puts uh, people in where they are making life and death decisions, but they're not necessarily qualified to do so. Right. And the fact that, you know, and Ivan being a child is sort of the thing that puts it into that perspective. And it's, it's a really shockingly straight ahead movie, but it's also utterly gorgeous. Every scene is striking. Um, I don't know, like, you should, if you, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen any of Tarkovsky's movies, start with Ivan's Childhood for sure. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, that one and Mirror, which is maybe the least accessible, but those are the two that I, and, and Solaris, I guess, are the, are the ones I would say start there, and if you can't get into them, I mean, Ivan's Childhood is, was way more accessible than the others, but I mean, those are the three that I, I recommend people start with. Andrei Rublev is probably more easily available than um than mirror because of the criterion collection but uh it's it's a it's a challenging film um but yeah ivan's childhood i I just i always forget like just how beautiful uh those those dreams even just the way that forest is is photographed uh Uh, there's just so many so many jaw-dropping images in that yeah the the way he plays with um sort of depth and stuff with that forest there it's a forest that's just there's no really like kind of shrubbery or anything it's just these trees i don't remember exactly what kind of trees they are but they're sort of narrow trees with very high trunks so you don't see any branches it's just these trunks all shooting up and you know the camera moves through this forest throughout the film um in all these different sequences the sequence where the lieutenant or whatever is chasing down uh sasha uh in the forest like that whole kind of weird predatory but also kind of pathetic scene with him and her with masha yeah masha that's what i mean yeah yeah it's it's those little detours away from ivan's story that that add like all these this other kind of character business i mean it 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 doesn't really push the narrative forward but it it still gives you these nice kind of set pieces within you know it, it keeps it from being just a war, a straight ahead war movie, like these little details. Yeah. It, it reminded me of canal actually. And apparently it was inspired not by that film necessarily, but by ashes and diamonds. The yeah. other, uh, Andre can't remember, pronounce his last Vida. Vida, uh, film. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I, I read that also. Um, I, I, I feel like it's a much more lyrical film than ashes and diamonds, but, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it, I, I rewatched all of them again. It's funny. I, since Daylight Savings Time kicked in, I've been getting up at like really absurd hours of the morning. It's, I've been actually getting up at like four in the morning and watching these Tarkovsky films before work with a cup of coffee. It seems to be the best way to experience them. Um, but Ivan's Childhood uh, was where I started uh, when rewatching them. And it's, I, I still think it's... I mean, the books I have that are critical of Tarkovsky are like, well, his first film is good. <laughs> And then he just gets one yeah. way over his head. <laughs> so I would say that if someone hasn't watched one, yeah, I'd agree that that's a good place to begin. Um, 
I'm trying to think what I was going to ask you, if there's anything else. Um, did you have any other points you wanted to go over? Oh, it's so, <laughs> it's so hard. I mean, do you, do you really think it's not necessary to understand what the films are quote unquote about? I mean, I, I understand what they're loosely about. Yeah, like, uh, like Solaris, I understand what they're loosely about, but it really doesn't bother you the whole sort of final 20 minutes or so where there's not a lot of beautiful sequences anymore. The plot kind of stops moving forward, and they're just sort of talking generally about... Well, I think I think some of what he's saying is kind of meant to be incoherent. Like that, that kind of like feverish kind of like talk about love, I think, is just him kind of ranting. Uh-huh. I don't know that that's meant to be uh, the message. I think he, I, if it is, it doesn't read that way to me. It just seems like he's in a delirious state. I mean, how I read the ending uh, is just that they, they got rid of the, the hosts or whatever, like the visitors that were coming through communicating with the planet. Uh, and then, you know, it seems like the mission is over, but he's gone back down to the planet and is living, he's still living in this kind of artificial past that he's creating. Um, it's funny, I was reading an essay about Solaris and they were comparing it to, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, in that when you go to sleep, it's when the supernatural science fiction stuff happens. Sure. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's uh, it, it's it's a funny thing to compare. Solar- to. Solaris I, I, is a fascinating movie. It's not it. I I, I kind of like it less than than the others, um, but it it is a really it is. There's a lot during the first, uh, you know, like the first hour and a half or so that I really really like a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's not my favorite, but it's 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 an accessible film compared to some of the other ones. And uh, I don't know. It, it's it's the most it's the most melodramatic because it has that love story. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, the fact that they were able to adapt that same story and make uh, the Soderbergh version, which I haven't seen it since it came out, and I can't really remember. I, that was that was actually the other thing in the back of my mind when I was when I was watching Solaris was like, how the fuck. Did they make a Hollywood version? Uh, like even Soderbergh Hollywood, even with Soderbergh and like George Clooney backing it. Like, how did a what would a Hollywood version of this be like? How did that get made? Who pitched that? Like, yeah, I think that was just he had like, some really big box office successes, and so he could do what he you know that they could do anything he wanted to do. I think James Cameron was also involved in that. Maybe they just wanted to try out some new equipment they had. Really. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I saw Solaris, the Soderbergh version, and I can't remember if I saw any other films around that time with more walkouts in the <laughs> audience than that. So, film. Even so, did it, so to an extent, it kept the pacing. I mean, it, it's hardly the pacing of Tarkovsky. I, I don't, I don't remember it being that inaccessible, but. I think it was a lot more of a meditative kind of thing than maybe the trailers kind of suggested. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what people thought it was going to be. I mean, it has definitely its own following now. But at the time, audiences really were not crazy about it. At least like the mainstream audiences that initially turned out for it because it was, you know, a romantic space movie with George Clooney. Right. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, it has a beautiful score also. If you ever... So you've never seen it? I have not seen it, no. There are moments that you might you might really respond to, but it's definitely a different animal than Tarkovsky. But it's also not like you know Ocean's Eleven kind of like you know jovial kind of. It's not it's not it's it's still kind of a somber 
sci-fi art film. <laughs> the, but it's just it's less one than Tarkovsky. Yeah. The Tarkovsky film, it's such a it's such an amazing expression of grief that <laughs> Like uh, the 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 psychiatrist gets there specifically to get to the bottom of it and to be a rational person to be there and be like, all right, what is going on? We need to figure out what's going on so we can figure out how to proceed. Nothing anyone has been sending out of the space station makes sense. I'm going to be the Scully. <laughs> I'm going to be the rational one. I yeah. and then, but the second he sees his wife, he just abandoned. Like he's just going to live there. Like he just decides yeah. almost immediately. The first first time he sees his wife. Um, you know, he doesn't, he panics and he basically just, he basically just MST3Ks her. He puts in a rocker and he sh- rocket and he shoots her into space. I know. It's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's, it is actually kind of a humorous scene because like, he doesn't know quite what's going on and then he burns himself because he's in the area of the blast as the rocket leaves the station. Um, and he's just, all right, yeah, you're all tight in. Okay. I'm right behind you. And then he fires her into space. But the second time she appears, he just completely surrenders. And even though it isn't, uh, it's a little while before you actually find out what their story is. Um, it's like you—you you just know he has to have been harboring this insane grief and this sort of. There's a lot of films that deal with the idea of um, is you know it you know it's Christopher Nolan's Inception, for example. It's like. Well, is the fantasy or reality? Like, what's better, a, a, a pleasant fantasy or a or a depressing reality? You know, and right. like, what what are the what are the actual results of retreating into fantasy world and stuff like that? And it, and it's it's often given a lot of you know the themes are often given a lot of lip service, but I think I've actually never seen them explored better than in Solaris, where. <laughs> neither seem like good options. They're both bad. They both seem yeah. just terrible. Yeah. This last time I was watching, I was reminded of, this might sound like the most bizarre comparison, but like Purple Rose of Cairo. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, it's just like, well, I, it doesn't matter that it's completely irrational that my, that my perfect mate is here. My perfect mate is here. Right. Like it, it just like, I can just accept it, you know, on the terms that it's happening. And also the madness. idea of, uh, of his wife, like the other great thing is, it's, his wife is not just his hallucination. His wife is a being that was created based on his memory of her. But she has kind of a mind of her own, and she's sort of at the same time he is retreating into this fantasy of them being married again and them being together again, um, and her not having committed suicide. Like she is sort of realizing kind of why they broke like why things went sour for them in the first place and yeah like he's he's sort of like she's becoming more human as he is sort of forcing her more into more of a role of like idealize like no you're my wife and this is what you have to be and yeah i i could almost even compared a little bit to eternal sunshine the spotless mind too like when the, the 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 lover where things had gone wrong comes back and it's initially just all of the negative things that that broke it apart are gone. It's just it's just the idealized version and the shell. Right. But the more time goes on, the more those same old cracks in the in the facade kind of um, you know reemerge. Yeah, that but, that uh, sort of idealized and hurt. Yeah, just kind of going sour to the point where she commits suicide again. I know. Um, that's yeah. it's really great. It's it's really only the last like twenty five to thirty minutes of that film where. 
it kind of loses me and I am, and I have trouble following it on any level. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's definitely the, it's, it's the only one with a love story of all of the Tarkovsky films. Um, so it, I think that might be why it, that was, I think maybe his biggest commercial success. Yeah. Uh, I think it played, I want to say it played for like 15 years um, in, in the Soviet Union. Wow. Just like, it just hung around, and I think well, it made like, like as, some a, as a midnight movie, or I don't, I don't know. Like you know how I mean, in the days before, you know, home video, like certain theaters could just keep a film yeah. running for a long, long time. And I think that I don't know that it ever was playing in more than five theaters, but it just it just kept hanging around. I don't know if it went from theater to theater. Like I don't know if it played in one theater for like fifteen years, but I think that it it just was always playing somewhere. Interesting. Yeah, it, it really, I mean, I think that that's, that commercial success is probably what got him the, you know, the ability to make Mirror, the way, you know, so uncompromising and so, you know, much uh, to the horror of the Soviet authorities, huh. that, um, because that film was so successful. And I think, I think on some level, they really wanted a Soviet film that could compete in the marketplace with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of the reason why they allowed it. But I forget if they even... They gave him like trouble. I know that when he would show films at Cannes, like Soviets, like I think Andrei Rublev, when it, they showed it, like they only allowed it to be showed like once at four in the morning or something like that. Like they they made it really hard for his films to find an audience in the West. It's it's amazing because, that that I don't know if I can think of another example of someone whose films were controversial because the government found them uh, subversive aesthetically. Yeah. Not not content wise. There's not a lot of sex. There's not sort of challenging political ideas in his films. Right. It's really well, just the aesthetics. Well, Andrei Rublev could be read okay. as political because even though it's about an artist making you know beautiful art in a time of turmoil, you know, in another century, it could be read as you know an artist in the 1960s trying to make art and in the culture. And the and you know society doesn't understand it. Like it still it still could be a disruptive. You could you can interpret it in a disruptive way. But yeah, something like Mirror or Solaris was not. You know, I mean, the spiritual themes are what really got under the skin of the Soviet authorities more than you know some kind of like inherent capitalistic kind of pro West uh, ideology kind of being smuggled. It wasn't like that. But it, it, it's funny to think of a film. Yeah, like there is not really an equivalent in in. You know, in our in our country, in our culture that I can think of, where it would be suppressed at that level. Yeah, it, it, you you mentioned Kubrick, and it, I, I mean, I certainly thought about to that because I feel like whenever people talk about um, masterpieces of sci-fi, and certainly people have been talking about it a lot since Interstellar come, came out, in mm-hmm. in terms of how Interstellar is not two, but the two movies that are always referenced are two thousand one and Solaris. Um. And I always – I find Tarkovsky's like – I don't know. There's probably not a Tarkovsky movie that I like as much as I like Dr. Strangelove. Um, right. And I – and I, it, I'm not the biggest fan of Kubrick like in general, his aesthetic, his – what his films feel like and stuff. But I, I – you know, I obviously can't deny that he's made some really amazing masterpieces. Yeah. Um, but, but like I almost kind of – I prefer sort of Tarkovsky's approach – because again, like it just it just feels like uh, you're never far away from an emotional core. 
No matter how far out into the weeds he gets, you always kind of know what the feeling behind it is. Well, that was the thing. He, he, he didn't like 2001 A Space Odyssey because he felt like it was too cold. And so Solaris was meant to be kind of a warmer, more emotional kind of response to that. It, it feels like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they still have similar kind of like, you know, there's only so warm you can make the interior of a spaceship. Sure. It still has that. It has a similar kind of thing um, going on. But, it, yeah, I, it, is a, it is a more... Uh, you know, emotional or sentimental kind of kind of story uh, than two thousand one. Honestly, the most the most disappointing part of Solaris for me is that he pulls the dwarf card when like oh, there's something <laughs> weird going on in this spaceship. Like a dwarf runs out of someone's room, and the, and then the guy grabs the dwarf back and like puts him behind the door. And you never find out who that is. You never do find <laughs> out what the other two scientists who are there what their vis- what their guests I- are like or where they come from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's funny because he gets, like, Solaris just doesn't proceed at all like a, like any, like any other movie I've really ever seen. But, like, but it, when he gets there, first thing that happens is he doesn't see anyone, but a ball is bounced towards him and rolls towards him like it's the changeling. <laughs> 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 and, and, uh, and, and then, like, a, there's a dwarf and that it's like, ooh, where'd that dwarf come from? And it's, it's these weird, it almost, I don't know if just, now they're cliches, and at the time they felt like kind of fresh, evocative images. Yeah, I don't even know what would have been the the antecedent to something like that kind of imagery. I mean, I'm trying to think if Boonwell ever had anything. I'm, I'm trying to think because uh, like the bouncing ball. I mean, I don't know that that's any kind of reference to you know what it, like kill baby kill or something. Right? Like yeah, that. I don't know, but. It's, it was it was just funny to me that it was and for a second there, I had so actually when we first started the podcast and we weren't exactly sure exactly would it would it be a website like a film website with a podcast attached or would it would it would, it, would we just be doing the pod we weren't exactly sure what we were going to do one of the ideas I had was that I could do like short almost sketches but like humorous films about that were half parodies of like art films and half sort of about cinephilia. Um, and so one of the first movies I wanted to make was, it was called Patrick uh, watches Solaris. <laughs> and, and, and the concept of the film was that I like get Solaris in the library and I sit down and I put it on. And then about halfway through the credits, I pause it and I get up and I am like, no, no, hold on. I need to get something to drink. And I, so I get myself the water and I get myself a bowl of chips and I sit back down and I put it on and then my phone goes off and I have to pause it and I have to give it another day. And basically just – I never get around to watching anything past the first 30 minutes of Solaris where they never leave the planet. And, yeah, yeah. You, and it's just – and that way because that's actually what happened to me was I I rented this from the library like five times um, all in like fully intending to see this film and I never made it to the space station. Yeah, I I, I, I think you mentioned – like never getting past the thirty-minute mark, maybe on the Romero. Yeah. One of the one of the more recent episodes, I know that you mentioned that you had tried and failed to get through Solaris, um, and I think that might have been the the mo- moment that I had a twelve-hour nap the first time I watched sure. it. But like, uh, yeah, I, I think that it's. I mean, I can totally understand with all of these films, less so Ivan's Childhood, but I, the others, I can totally understand why these would not be for everybody. So you know, I. 
So, like, it's, when we first get to the space station in Solaris, I was sort of thinking, like, oh, wait, is this, like, a, is this like a creepy movie? Is this, like, a haunted house movie in space? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, is this, is, is this, is this, um, is this, uh, what's that Sam Neill movie? Is this Event Horizon? <laughs> you know? Oh like, <laughs> yeah, well, it does, ha- it does have the most conventional genre kind of, you know, uh, sequences. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stalker is also like loosely you could compare them because they're science fiction films about supernatural kind of elements that uh generate things in a corporal way like uh based on on one's kind of subconscious the 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 story of, of stalker is that there's this zone that may have been a place where aliens visited it's unclear but at the center of this is a room where people's wishes come true. And there's a guy that guides people to this room. It's, it's uh, telling you more than that. I mean, maybe someday you'll see it. I don't want to like, spoil anything. Sure. In it, but, it, but that one, that one almost opens more like a racer head or something where it's like, it's like this really grim, uh, not post-apocalyptic, but like the way a racer head is like this kind of industrialized gray, uh, unpleasant, uh, but aesthetically rich kind of environment. That's kind of how the, the certain sequences of, of stalker operate. But then when in the zone, it's, it's kind of like, it goes from black and white to color and it becomes a much more, um, kind of a rich color palette. It, it, it's, it's still like a very philosophical way to approach science fiction, and it's got less. There's no dwarves in this one. Huh. Like there's less. There's less like. Uh, there's less things that could be like from a Star Trek episode or whatever. Like it's it's a much more. It's almost more like a play. Yeah. Um. And it, so, whether you find it tedious or, or I I know people that that's their favorite of his films, and I thought when watching it again that that one would be one that you'd respond to. Um, so long as you, you know, can get in with the rhythm of it. Cause it, you know, it has that kind of slow, it's a three hour film. It's, you know, it's not you know, something you could put on in the wrong frame of mind, but, um, there is something kind of amazing and mysterious about it. Um, in a way that I think that that's actually the one that Tarkovsky preferred. Solaris, I think he thought, I think he thought that that one played a little too straight. Yeah. Actually. I, I can, uh, I can buy that. Solaris, yeah, Solaris kind of feels again. It's just, I think it might just be the fact that it takes place on a space station. Um, is it's just aesthetically, it doesn't have that thing that captivates me. That even even the most slow paced of his other films uh, do. Yeah. Um, do you ever? Um, I know because you have to. Uh, kind of maintain a certain schedule as far as like once you wrap up prepping for an episode you have a new episode to prep for and then things you watch for pleasure do you when when you are on a on a tear for a certain director do you still keep researching when it's a director like say preminger that you get really excited by or or are you not really do you not really have the time to keep going with once once you move on to the next director you kind of only have so much time no i i I rarely do it's really a shame especially with preminger I have yeah. – I actually I, – at a resale shop, I got – I found Exodus on DVD and I yeah. immediately bought it. Um, mm-hmm. But I haven't watched it yet because it's just one of those things. Uh, Vincent Minnelli was the other one that I just wanted to keep going. Um, but yeah. unfortunately, I had to 
prep for a new episode. Um, speaking of which, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that will be the case this time because I don't know if I'm going to do a director's episode next. I don't know if I'm going. The next thing we have on the schedule is Hector Babenko, and mm. I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think I'm just, I'm, I think now, and it's just me, so I can make this executive decision, um, uh-huh. that I'm going to have a lot of trouble finding someone who's passionate about Hector Babenko. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm having trouble getting excited about it. I'm feeling a little burnt out. Uh, I think I'm going to do in, in its place, a couple different bonus episodes. Do you know what the subjects are going to be? Yet? Um, me and Regina really want to do a commentary track for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is my favorite Indiana Jones movie. And oh. it was a movie we both watched a lot as a kid. And I think it's fascinating because it's just extremely well-made action-adventure movie. But it's also mm-hmm. one of the most insanely racist mainstream movies. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I think you guys talked about maybe doing that maybe on the Linkletter episode. Yeah. I forget. One of them you mentioned that yeah, idea. We, I, we've, I we've had this idea that. for a while. We just haven't sat down and done it so i think that'd be a fun uh commentary to do because it's just it's you know i i often am i i think it i don't know if it's important but i i try to reconcile things that are offensive and they can still have artistic merit um oh yeah because once you get into the habit of judging everything based on its morality you're gonna like a lot of pablum that happens to be progressive and you're gonna like hate a lot of really well-made movies because they're regressive and well there's actually two films that are in release right now that i saw at the new york film festival uh gone girl and Foxcatcher, and both of those i can read some things in them that i'm not really that crazy about in terms of i i i don't know if anyone else feels this way but i feel like gone girl is kind of a misogynistic film yeah that, and that, I, feel like, I feel like that was the the, the buzz out of that movie. There were some think pieces and stuff about it. And I feel like Foxcatcher could be read as kind of a homophobic film. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think that the makers in either case had that intention. I don't think that the cast or the screenwriters or anything, like, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's what's intended. I don't even know that that's what most audiences are getting out of it. But when I saw both of them, I mean, I still enjoyed them to the degree that I enjoyed them for other reasons. I, it was kind of more like, well, I can see how this could be read that way. Like this would not – someone that is homophobic going to Foxcatcher would have their prejudices reinforced. Or someone that hates women would have their prejudices reinforced by Gone Girl. Yeah. Uh, does that make it a bad film? Well, it depends you know, on how much you know, the political end of reading a film you – know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that's explicitly – I mean, does that take you out of a film like? Well, you're talking about the the, the racist aspect of a Temple of Doom. I mean, so when you watch that, does that ever make you queasy, or is well, it just it, you? Just... It's something I only. It's something I only realized in retrospect. I Temple of Doom was one of the like seven movies I had on VHS as a kid that I watched a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Temple of Doom, I have completely internalized every every musical cue, every sound effect. You, you know, sometimes you have them you don't just know every word of a movie, you know the sounds that come before certain lines and stuff. Oh, sure. And yeah, yeah. that's total Temple of Doom for me. So it's only like, in retrospect, when I think about it, I'm, it's just like, oh my god, I cannot believe it. It's so crazy how racist it is. But also it's just, I don't know, I watch I watch old films. Like, I, Buster Keaton's one of my favorite directors, and one of my favorite Buster Keaton movies 
um, is Seven Chances, and that movie has a transphobic oh. joke. Well, I mean, at the time, I don't think that was ever a consideration. <laughs> but it, yeah. it also has a anti-Semitic joke, and it also has uh, several racist jokes, including a man in blackface playing, like, his bumbling servant who's trying to help him, like... It's just one of those yeah. things that if you're gonna if you're going to be going through film history, you know you have to like you have to be prepared for that, and you can't sure. apologize for it. I mean, there's some like things that are just insensitive is one thing, um, yeah. and then there are films that I think are actually morally repugnant, like that are more like the that the the film is about espousing a moral. Like, uh, right. like I think Sergeant York is an amazing movie, and that I think the message of that movie is gross. Oh yeah, <laughs> that movie is about that movie is like that. It, it's the opposite. <laughs> it's it's like it's like all those uh, countercultural movies in the late sixties and the early seventies in Hollywood in reverse, where it's about this sort of freewheeling bandit uh, outlaw who find and he's a sharpshooter and he just tears up hell in the town. And eventually he's ostracized and he finds religion and he um, sort of repents and he's just starting a nice humble life for himself as a pacifist. And then and then World War II happens and, and his government comes to him and says, well, you know, your country is basically your god. So you should, re- you should renounce your pacifism and join the army. And then he becomes a sharpshooter and then he's the most decorated soldier and everyone's singing his praises. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. I think I think even though that was one of the most uh, acclaimed, award-winning of the Howard Hawks's films at the time of release, I think it won an Oscar. But like it, critics never bring it up the way they bring up His Girl Friday and The Big yeah. Sleep and Rio Bravo. I think part of that is because of that message. Is is critics now are, are, are not, they they. They don't go for that kind of uh, that kind of message in in, in film, and it, so it's, and it's an unfashionable film in critical circles. Even though it is an entertaining film, I mean, it's a it's perfectly super well-made. entertaining, and the and the action, like the war sequences at the end, they're so exciting. It's some of the yeah. most exciting action sequences I've ever seen in like a pre sixties movie, and it's 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 just like unbelievable how exciting. Like I like Rio Bravo a lot. I like Red River a lot. You know, I like a lot of Howard Hawks' other movies, but those movies, yeah. which are ostensibly even more action oriented, the the scenes are not as exciting as they as the ones in Sergeant York, uh, where he's sort of taking out the you know all the machine gun nests and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it, it, it works as a propaganda film, which it, in to some extent it is. Um, you know, and it's 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 not as offensive as I don't know if you ever saw Air Force. No, I, uh, I never did see Air Force. Yeah, Air Force is you know a uh, it's a t- typical Howard Hawks like it's you know guys you know taking care of business in in the, in the army you know they're all they all get along they you know they have you know charismatic overlapping dialogue and they're you know they're professionals they're gonna go kick some ass but it's like it has these scenes of like Asian soldiers being gunned down kind of like peck and paw style in slow motion and it's just yeah it's just kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable sure sure <laughs> sure uh, yeah it's. It's weird to it's it, it can be weird watching those films. I mean, there is a line at which point even uh, propaganda for something I don't believe in, like no matter how, like I'm probably never going to sit down and watch Triumph of the Will. <laughs> you know, not I. Yeah, I, at some point I intend to watch it. I it's just that and, and Birth of a Nation are films that I want to see at least once to have just 
just to have the knowledge of it. Yeah. I, I tried watching Birth of the Nation once. I got so just I just felt so awful watching it. I just wasn't ready. There, it's funny. I actually watched uh, over October. You know, I tried to. You know, I was just watching all sorts of horror movies all month, but I was also trying to watch a lot of different shorts and uh, cartoons and stuff um, to try to just you know keep in the spirit of the season. And mm-hmm. I was looking up like some silent comedies that would be precursors to horror comedy, um, and I found this Harold Harold Lloyd one called Haunted Spooks. Um, and it turns out that <laughs> the second word of that title does not refer to ghosts. I know. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. It is it's a it's about it's it's basically it's it's your old classic thing where you you get the inheritance if you spend a night in a house except mm-hmm. that the house isn't actually haunted. It's someone pretending that it's like it's someone it's basically a, a house on haunted hill thing where it's all devices um to make it the people believe it's haunted so they'll be scared out of it. Um mm-hmm. but basically the main thrust of it is isn't it hilarious that all of these black servants um, that <laughs> that to be fair uh, at least some of them are actual African Americans and not in blackface um, That's progress <laughs> sure like isn't it hilarious they're con- that they're so afraid of ghosts like it and it was so gross to watch it's a short film it was like you know 13 minutes long I, it was probably a one reel so it was probably like closer to 20 minutes long or something like that and it yeah. just felt so gross and it was really upsetting. Yeah, well, the Harold Lloyd say is working at the Criterion on a lot of those reissues, but I, I wonder if Criterion will just leave that one in the vault because I, I don't know how they would, you know, not yeah, be able to put that out without like some kind of sure. disclaimer. Yeah, or yeah. Cause that's... The, the way Warner Brothers dealt with it, I mean, I think Warner Brothers didn't release all of their really gross, like the actual, like the super gross band ones. But any mm-hmm. of the – when they would release their, like, classic uh, cartoons, the ones that had some offensive depictions of, like, Asians or or African-Americans or whatever, the way they would get through it is they would have, like, a disclaimer where it was – I think the, the reasoning was um, – is, like, these are very – they these have extremely offensive depictions of minorities, but to pretend that these depictions didn't happen would be to pretend that we weren't part of – our nation's history or something like, like, yeah, I mean, there's, if, if you put it in context, I mean, suppressing it is only going to just drive up. I mean, if there's an interest in people seeing it, I mean, something like the, our gang shorts, yeah. I think were kind of suppressed. It was a Bill Cosby acquired the rights and then was like keeping them out of circulation because of the racial aspects of that. He felt were like offensive and like, you know, in, impressionable children would be, Raised with those old values, yeah. and, and I understand what he was thinking. Um, I don't know. I mean, I remember even in the eighties there was uh, video cassettes that I saw um, called controversial cartoons. Yeah, controversial yeah, yeah. was the those, word. And those are very set, popular would... now, like DVD sets where it's banned cartoons. Yeah, and yeah, it's the same thing, but it's like all the racist stuff. Yeah, where it's yeah, it's only the good racist. <laughs> it's 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 only it's only uh, snow coal black and the seven dwarves, uh, <laughs> like yes, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I I don't think Temple of Doom is that bad, but no, I I don't either. And I I certainly would. Yeah, I mean Spielberg seems to take great pains mm-hmm. to to let the world know that he is not a racist, mm-hmm. but um. I was going to ask you. 
Um, you you saw a short film that you rated on Letterboxd recently. I was going to ask you sure. about it because I couldn't find it anywhere. Was it is it is it everything and everything and everything? Okay, is yes. That the title. That was a film I actually I had forgotten I had seen, and then I found, and then I stumbled upon it in some list on Letterboxd, and I realized that I had seen it. So what is that? So everything and everything and everything is a short film that came out this year. I saw it because the Dissolve linked to it. I think the Dissolve has like a running feature where they where they link to short films that you can watch online. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a film um, in which uh, – oh, my god. I'm s- the name. Uh, the director of Primer. Shane Carruth? Yes, Shane Carruth is the lead actor. And okay. Shane Carruth is sort of in this like kind of ruddy apartment and he's he's sort of in a dead-end job or whatever – and he's just sort of a sad sack. And then he goes into his living room one day and there's a giant blue uh, pyramid there. Not it's, it's like a pyramid. It's about like six feet tall, you know, and like five feet across. And mm-hmm. he doesn't know what the hell it is. But if he does a very sp- specific thing um, – and I think the specific thing is that he just sort of – idly whistles a song um, as he opens and closes the door, or perhaps like the doorknob falls off. Mm-hmm. Um, the pyramid starts to hum and then it spits out a doorknob. <laughs> and then <laughs> okay. to which he goes, huh. And then, so he puts it on his door. Uh, he puts the new doorknob on his door. And then as a test, I guess he recreates the the random events that made it spit out a doorknob mm-hmm. and it does it again. And it's about him building this entire business, like it this basically this entire economy on this random thing <laughs> that spits out doorknobs where he's now selling doorknobs and he has people around the clock playing on keyboards and pianos and – like there are people whose their entire job is to open and close the door and then to take off that doorknob and put on the next one um, mm-hmm. to keep this thing going. And they don't exactly know how it works and they don't know why its production is going down. And it's a, it's just an interesting short film and it's, it's kind of a clear allegory for just the absurdity of sort of capitalism where mm-hmm. it's it's just this sort of resource and they don't quite understand it and they don't quite understand like how long it's going to last but they build they build their entire lives around it and the, these absurd things they have to do to get it um it's, it was an interesting short film yeah i i, I it sounds like something i'm gonna have to try yeah, to it was out. yeah it was on vimeo um it's it, it i don't know i i think if you search you should maybe if you just search everything and everything and everything dissolve you would find the article where they link to it I have to look for that after we re- finish recording this. I'm going to look for it. Yeah, I watched that. I watched uh, Outer Space. Was that a one that you sh- you showed Jim that, Outer Space? I don't know if I showed it to him. He might have found it on his own. I mean, I was aware of it. Um, I remember when you guys spoke about it on another episode or Jim brought it up. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, that's an ama- and that's one of the most famous, at least, at least for horror people, I think it's one of the most famous avant-garde shorts because it has that connection with the entity. Sure, yeah. Jim sent me a link. Uh, back in like May and he was like oh you have to watch this and I was like cool and then I never did and I only just last night watched Outer Space and that movie's incredible it's basically I didn't under I didn't know at the time because the footage is so altered uh basically the footage is damaged 
Um, it's basically footage from the Barbara Hershey horror movie, The Entity, uh, but cut uh, strangely and and scratched up and and the contrast is messed with and, and looped and sound design is horrible and scratchy. It's basically – I'm don't. i sure I've told this story on the podcast before. But basically first time I ever saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre was I rented it from Blockbuster and I got – and it was on VHS. And at the dinner scene, once she was bent over the bucket and they handing the grandfather the hammer to try to like kill her, mm-hmm. um, it just – it. You know, and the, and sort of it gets it gets more and more feverish that whole crazy dinner scene in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. The 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 tape began to get damaged, like like that part had been rewound over and over again, and then eventually that the tape just sort of screwed up and everything went blue, which is what my VCR did when it wasn't getting a signal, and then it was like that and with various kind of like you know just distorted sounds. Yeah. And then it the, the actual picture and sound didn't come back until she jumps out the window. So for a while there, it <laughs> what it was it was like a very memorable way to see the movie because it was almost as if <laughs> it was almost as if the movie the 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 tape itself could not contain the horror and everything <sighs> just went off the rails. And then it came and actually something happened to me. Same thing happened to me with uh, when I was when I was really young. I had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the movie tape that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that actually, it at the time, it always made me mad because we got like a damaged tape, I guess, that there was a whole like 15-minute section where they they flee the city and they're living in the in this like farmhouse and then they finally go back to the city. And it's the most boring part of the movie, but I didn't know that because that was all just damaged and lost on my VHS tape. But I still love the movie so much that I watch it for years and I didn't know that I actually had, had a favor done for me because the most boring part of the movie – it just skipped from action to the climax. <laughs> and so I have experience with this sort of like and – and I suppose anyone who's tape, recorded something on videotapes over and over again and sort of has an idea for how things can degrade um, in that way. I have you, – you have sort of a sense memory for it. And outer space is like that combined with like Stan Brackage sort of um, techniques but – yeah, it's it, it almost – it feels like a scene in a movie that's too horrific to see. So it's represented via scratched footage and glimpses of a screaming – and glimpses of sight and sound of a screaming woman. And at some points, like, it just rolls right off the reel and you, it's just flashing white as if, like, you know, as if the film itself went off the the reel. It's, it's a fascinating, really great movie. Yeah, I, I used to be really into uh, certain kind of like almost like experimental sound collage kind of like offshoots of the industrial kind of music scene. Yeah. Like things that were like post-throbbing gristle and uh, it Nurse reminds with me wound? of that you kind ever, of thing. You ever listen to Nurse with Wound? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Stephen Stapleton. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of that kind of that kind of music almost, um, even though it's it's – what what would you call it like music concrete or yeah that the was phrases. the that was the french term that yeah. it, that was it was funny that was not off industrial the music concrete was something the french were doing in the 50s once like all like recording on tape became cheaper and more people okay. could do it they would they would make sound collages that were like let's drop a bunch of coins on the floor and then play that in reverse and then right, and we'll right, loop right. that and then over that we'll have the sound of a door close like I so 
I know you haven't listened to it. You haven't heard any of my – it's funny you bring that up though because you haven't, you haven't listened to any of the music I made. But my early no, electronic stuff was all inspired by that. It was all huh. um, sample-based and it was all about um, distorting and tearing through samples. Like I would literally just – you know, you, your hard drive just accumulates all sorts of different sound files from music you download or like – computer games you have where they all have their own like folders with sound files or mm-hmm. podcasts and stuff like that or different just audio clips I downloaded or sound effects and stuff. So when I would make music, I would just troll through my hard drive and look for a song and I would sort of pick at random and then I would try to find just a piece of it and I would stretch it out and I would change the pitch and I would loop it or I would play it in reverse and I would build entire songs out of this like and I would, you know, and then I would add effects on top of it like reverb and sort of fuzzy distortion and stuff and it would just sort of that everything was about creating this kind of sludge yeah yeah. um and that was that was like that was i was really really into i was listening i was listening to a lot of uh william s burroughs sort of sound collage stuff and Mm -hmm. yeah i would do were you listening to like uh was it stockhausen i've never heard that no oh yes uh you might want to look him up. He was, I mean, he was part of, uh, I mean, he was an avant-garde uh, composer. I'm trying to think what years he was still, he was still uh, alive. Uh, I forget when he, if he's still alive or not now, but he was, he was someone that was doing, uh, was it like John Cage? Mm-hmm. Like, like that, like that kind of like avant-garde music that is not quite, it's not part of like the, the youth culture, industrial music kind of thing, but it's almost kind of like more rooted in, um, kind of like some kind of offshoot of classical music yeah. as far as like how it's received. Right, that postmodern kind of classical music. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, I, I really like that. I mean, to, to tie it back to film, like I, I always love, like I love the ending of Tulane Blacktop <laughs> where the film just burns out in the guy's head. Oh, I know. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Monty Hellman because I, I didn't have a chance to watch them before we recorded, but they just put out his, uh, those two existential westerns that he did with Jack Nicholson before Tulane Blacktop, the Criterion Collection put out the shooting and ride in the whirlwind, um, like these uh, these kind of low budget, like weird kind of tone poem westerns that he made in the '60s um, before Easy Rider kind of gave everybody you know a new like it has Harry Dean Stanton, it has uh, what's her name from uh, The Witch Who Came from the Sea. Uh, what is her name? It's going to, it'll come to me in a second, but like the, uh, Millie Perkins. Uh-huh. Um, but like, if you like, um, Tulane Blacktop and like that kind of, uh, you're t- funny, we're talking about Tarkovsky, but like, you know, those kind of like dreamy existential kind of moody things. Yeah. Th- these were like, uh, the Western equivalents to the kind of thing he was doing with the, 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 the drive, the, the race car, not race car, but like, you know, the, the, the car culture of Tulane Blacktop. It's yeah. the same thing, but with horses. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Yeah, well, it's funny because I saw a film at the New York Film Festival that I wanted to mention called uh, Ho Ha. Um, it stars Viggo Mortensen, and it's about this 19th century Danish engineer and his daughter in Argentina. They're they're traveling with this this army that is like kind of engaging in like genocide, but it's like in this landscape that. It, it would tie into Tarkovsky because like it's like this very beautiful kind of surreal uh kind of uh landscape that it all takes place in it 
And the daughter runs away, and so it becomes about, like, Viggo Mortensen's quest to find her. But she might have run off with some soldier for whatever reason. So it's almost kind of like the searchers, and, like, you're not really sure if he's searching out someone that wants to be found. Uh-huh. But it's it, it almost reminds you of something like Aguirre, the Wrath of God, like the like that 70s kind of Herzog uh, style where it's like, it's very beautiful, it's very strange, it's very slow. I don't know how to really sum up too many plot things about it, but it, if you can see it on the big screen, it's got a similar kind of hypnotic pull to the Herzog and Tarkovsky style. Um, and it almost feels like a Western of sorts, but like in that kind of like acid Western kind of uh, like El Topo or something like that. Last time we were together, we talked about sort of the future of independent film with sort of video on demand and stuff. Do you yeah. ever do you ever worry like a movie like that um, just won't be made because it just won't have the same effect if it's not on the big screen? You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm writing my first uh, post for a new blog that I will hopefully have out maybe by the time this even goes live. I'm not sure. And I talk about that in it um, just because a lot of the films that I saw some of them are going to on demand almost right away. Even the Cronenberg film I saw, I think will probably wind up getting dumped on demand. Um, but uh, yeah, I do worry about that. Cause I mean, Hoha is a film that it's in the square aspect ratio. Like it's shot one, three, uh, 133 to one. Um, and it's funny cause it uses the frame so that like, I guess maybe the top third of it is always like this really astonishingly blue sky. And it's a really powerful effect on the big screen, I don't know what that would look like on the small screen. It almost even, even a film like, um, and this is going to be totally different, but like something like Todd Haynes is safe, where so much of it is photographed at a far distance from the characters. Um, that just takes on a greater impact on the big screen, where you can see just the scope of how big the environment is dwarfing the characters but on the small screen it's just like hey, you're just seeing a little little Julianne more yeah. <laughs> it's it just it's just a different thing um but you know i i don't know what's going to happen with all of it um I, I i'm noticing a more uh television influence style to a lot of things there's much more emphasis on the close-up yeah. as opposed to uh, the wider shots, like you, we talk about Tarkovsky, like I mean, there's certain Tarkovsky films where there's almost no close-ups. It's almost all yeah. kind of at a distance. Sacrifice is almost all at a distance. Um, it's just gonna, you know, uh, it's gonna change things. Um, and I, I don't really see that trend changing. I mean, it, it seems like this, the the larger scale films. I mean, you're something like Interstellar. I don't know that they're going to get rid of screens that will show Interstellar. But they might get rid of screens that would show, I don't know, I mean, you know, something like... Blue Ruin. Blue Ruin, yeah. Or even Nymphomaniac, which is a very visual, you know, beautiful aesthetic film. Uh, Speaking of a director that, you know, dedicated one of his films to Tarkovsky, because Antichrist was dedicated to Tarkovsky. That makes sense. I never never thought about Antichrist in those terms. Yeah, and actually, I guess Von Trier showed elements of crime to Tarkovsky, hoping that he would like it. Tarkovsky didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Von Trier became very troubled ever since, mm-hmm. and we get the films we get. Um, I never think of... I guess because most of the films I've seen from him are very dogma. Uh, right. I mean, there's obviously very striking moments of Antichrist, but even Antichrist, I, I, I don't think of Von Trier as a, very, as a stylist. 
You don't really. Well, I, well, you were you talking about elements of crime on one of the other episodes recently? Yeah, no, I was telling Gabe Powers that he needed to see elements of crime. That elements of crime is definitely an exception. I guess I suppose there might be more movies like that that I haven't seen. Well, what's funny with Von Trier, not, not to totally sidetrack it, but like Von Trier, it's like the first films are so stylish. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you ever saw... It, it goes by Zentropa and Europa, um, depending on what... You yeah, know, I, know, I never reason. did see that. I wasn't on the Lar- the Von Trier episode. That was another one where yeah. I prepared for it, and then I think, and actually in that case, it was a scheduling problem, but I was secretly yeah, relieved I, because I didn't know what I would have to say about most of those films. Yeah, I, I started d- developing a theory that you sat out like the most contentious directors. It was really frustrating because I was <laughs> waiting to hear what you would say about them because they're such provocateurs. Right. Um, but yeah, but, but the thing with Von Trier was like he had like this kind of reputation for like these really, you know, super gorgeous stylized films. And then breaking the waves, he just throws it all out so that he has like these beautiful kind of like chapter bookend shots. But then everything else has this kind of like rough and ready handheld style. Um, and then, you know, Dogma, you know, 95 kicks in and they become even more, you know, visually ugly, but the performances become more accentuated. They become much more actor show pieces. Yeah. And then with these more recent films like Nymphomaniac and Antichrist and Melancholy, it feels like he's trying to marry the two eras together so that they are very visually stylized, but they have that kind of rough and ready risky naturalistic kind of i mean it's been a while since i saw antichrist my memory of melancholia is that it was just like it just felt the same way a lot of his sort of handheld shot movies are with the occasional like striking tableau yeah which is uh, (laughs) i don't know that it it doesn't it doesn't feel to me the same thing as tarkovsky who or i mean obviously no no one's the same as tarkovsky but like when i think of a stylist i think of you know I, i think of someone who that is the that's sort of the driving force of their films um yeah. and i never think well, about von trier as in, in that way well if you look at like those sequences with everything moving in like that kind of like like almost like music video slow motion apocalypse kind of sequences yeah. in melancholy that's the kind of thing that feels like the old von Trier, whereas you know, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, certainly, like the the sequences, like at the uh, at the wedding and, and all that, like they, those feel naturalistically shot. Yeah, but I don't know. He's 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 a character. I should probably <laughs> watch Nymphomania. I, I, I get curious. so I get so exhausted watching von Trier's movies. I I yeah. I don't think he's a bad filmmaker, but I I rarely really like them. It's funny. Uh, right before we started recording this, someone texted me saying they were. Uh, they were partly through the first half of uh, *Nymphomaniac*, and they didn't like it. Yeah, uh, I, I've had people call. I had I had a girl call me up sobbing at how much she hated *Nymphomaniac*. <laughs> oh man! Uh, because because she was like because she, she loved *Melancholia*, and I think she liked *Antichrist*, but she she was expecting to like *Nymphomaniac* a lot, and she was so bitterly disappointed with it. Um, that I, I don't know. It, it seems to be a very divisive film, even among Von Trier fans that I know. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite films of the year, but now I feel like I need to go back to it and see if maybe I was just caught up in just the, the drive of it. I, I, I thought, in a way, it almost reminded me of Grand Budapest Hotel in that what I was responding to not, was not just the story and the characters, but just uh, the confidence of the storytelling. Yeah. Like there's a certain kind of, 
mastery to it that I just responded to just on a, on a cinematic level. I just thought like, yeah, this is someone that is at the peak of their powers and it's just so effortless, but it is, it is, I mean, it's a, it's a demanding film. Nymphomaniac is like four hours. It's, it gets very unpleasant. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your take on it, but I mean, yeah, you'd have to be in the right mood for it because it, it is kind of my big. It, my it, biggest fear is just that. I mean, I, I tend to think Lars von Trier's movies look pretty ugly, and mm-hmm. also I tend to think movies that focus around sex are very like sex is a very tedious thing to watch. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that on the road. Oh, okay, we did. We yeah, that. yeah, and so like maybe we even talked about this in regards to *Nymphomaniac*. I can't recall, but like I'm just like, oh man, that. Like wallowing in misery plus Lars von Trier style plus endless uh, explicit sex scenes. It's just uh, – do I have the time yeah. for that? Yeah. Well, I will tell you right now, if you don't want a film that wallows in misery, wallows in sex, and wallows in von Trier being von Trier, I mean it's – it might be the ulti- – I mean it, it, it is exactly what you fear it Okay. To be. Well, yeah. Maybe I'll skip it then. Yeah, I mean, you know, see it if you're if you're curious, but I mean, you know, kind of what to expect. It sounds like. I mean, it's funnier than a lot of von Trier films, and it's it's filled with so many references to von Trier and to his own reputation that it's like in a, in a, in many ways the most self reflexive really? von Trier film, which might even further compound your agony. Huh. Um, but yeah, it is in my head. I think about this podcast. I think about a time where I will. This isn't a job. <laughs> and there's no conceivable end to this podcast, but I think yeah. in some time I will be quote unquote retired from this podcast yeah. and I will have all the time in the world that I can just – I can leisurely go through people's catalogs and it's like, well, yeah, of course eventually I'm going to see all – every movie Vincent Minnelli ever made because, you know, just you know when I have the time. When I, <laughs> like, I, yeah. I think about it like the guy who wants to get to work on that boat, you know, <laughs> like – yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because we talked about, um, I guess, next year, you know, provided you don't retire before then or just decide you really can't stomach the idea of a Jean-Luc Godard episode. Um, as I've already started prepping for that just because I was really trying to see as much of his stuff as possible before. And he has so much material. Yeah. Because um, with the Rogue podcast, I, I watched every single thing he's ever directed. Uh, but I had a lot. You of don't time have to, to do that for, for Godard. I don't. I, yeah. I don't want to wish that upon you or anyone. Even even well, Godard's fans, I'm sure, don't like everything. I, know. I, I think but, Godard's uh, fans, even the ones who who like a lot of his stuff, I like the fact that they can just once a year watch a new Godard movie. I don't think any of his fans would choose to mainline that, like the, the last yeah. 20 years of Godard. Well, yeah, that's how, how I feel about Dark Shadows. If I ever start watching that, it's like, I'll never run out. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah. I ever get that box set, I'll never run out of it. But like, uh, yeah, no, with Godard, it's, it's, I was really only familiar with a certain, you know, really just the 60s work, which is its own big chapter of films. But I, I the stuff that he did afterwards... I never really was that well experienced with. And it's funny because like watching his stuff now, you totally see, this is going to make you crazy if you ever watch it, but you can see where Hal Hartley gets a lot of stuff. Oh, good. Like, a lot of stuff Goody. comes from Godard. <laughs> um, really, really all, a lot of what Hal Hartley does is just Godard plus Brisson as jokes mm-hmm. <laughs> or not jokes if you don't like it. But I mean, it's like, but it, it's the language of, of what he's doing for these comedies is all taken from, French art films. <laughs> like, that's the shtick. Yeah. 
one of these days. You saw Inherent Vice, though, and I am curious. Yes, I did. You said you are going to have – you don't know what you're going to say about that. Well, I would like I to mean, hear a I little did... something about Inherent Vice. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's going to create arguments, uh, even more than the master may be. Um, it's – you know what it's like? It's um, – there's a school of 70s kind of detective films like The Long Goodbye, yeah. like Chinatown, like Night Moves, the one that – you know, the, the Arthur Penn night moves, not the Kelly Reichardt film, uh, but the, uh, like a certain kind of like uh, quirky detective film, maybe. And if you took that and combined it with like the stoner humor of something like The Big Lebowski, that's probably what I would compare Inherent Vice to. So like that it, sounds could... infinitely appealing. What is the part that will, that will make it controversial or the uh, part that because... will make it divisive? I think I think it's it's so willfully confusing. It, you know how like the Big Sleep is a kind of confusing film to yeah. recount everything that happened. It's like that. And Paul Thomas Anderson's like, I don't care if it fucking makes sense. You know, like he's he doesn't care. It, it's it's all about the character and all these kind of like bits of business. I I, I don't know. It's it's a very episodic kind of film. It like, has a lot of famous people showing up, and sometimes they have something to do, and sometimes they don't. Um, it jumps around from like things that are very kind of goofy, things that are like kind of sexy, things that are a little bit emotional, but it's it even some stuff that feels like, oh shit, Paul Thomas Anderson could probably make a really good thriller if he felt like it. You know, like there's it's it's like trying on all these different things, but it doesn't feel as maybe cohesive as one of his other films might. Like it's it's playful looks so gorgeous i'll tell you that um it looks it looks like it was shot in the 1970s more than any contemporary film i've ever seen um it looks i mean if 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 you didn't know any of those actors and someone told you it was you know from the 70s you could probably convince someone um and seeing it at the lincoln center where everything else i saw was it was a digital projection often of digitally shot films not all of them um it was kind of a revelation because I think I saw Mike Lee's new film the night before uh, Mr. Turner and that was his first film shot digitally and projected digitally and honestly I thought it looked like shit yeah. you know I thought it I mean you know it, it has all this beautiful artwork in it so people are talking about how it's visually stunning I think it looks terrible Man, we, I like Mike Lee's films a lot <laughs> we saw the trailer look, for Mr. Turner before Whiplash and uh-huh. one of the things that Whiplash does really, really well that most films about people who are great artists don't do well is uh-huh. – or great – people who are just simply great at a at a given field is that it's super convincing. You really do believe Miles Tellers is drumming the whole time and he – and he's very good. And apparently Miles Teller actually can drum. So that, yeah. that helps. I'm sure at a – I'm sure you know a lot of it was – in the close-ups and stuff, it was professional drummers and stuff like that. But, like, yeah. it really does do a really good job convincing you that you're watching a person at the peak of their powers in the way that, say, a movie about a great novelist is always very conspicuously avoids, <laughs> like, talking about what made their novel great. Right. They just have people go, oh, it was so great. Um, and Mr. Turner, I was I was thinking, like, geez, like, if you want to pick a hard thing, how are you going to make an audience – 
in a movie theater respond to a painting. <laughs> like, yeah. like the whole place for a painting is an art gallery where at your own speed you can just sort of sit and look and absorb it. And it's like, how do you even pull that off in a movie unless it's like Pollock and the whole point of the painting is the way it was done and the movement behind it? Well, I don't know if you saw Manelli's Lust for Life when you were researching. No, I didn't see that. that cause that's a famous film in his canon as far as like films about painters. And even... Tarkovsky's uh, Andre Rublev. You don't really see that character painting a whole lot. I mean, it's it's tricky to pull that kind of thing yeah. off. I think um, I don't know. It's funny since we're talking about Mr. Turner. One thing that Inherent Vice and that and Interstellar all share in common is that they are three of the films that had the hardest time making out dialogue at times. Really? Um, is this a new trend? The, why why are things mixed so poorly? Well, I think in the case of the Mike Lee film and the Paul Thomas Anderson film, I think the acoustics are not so great in that theater. And I think that when you have thick British accents or you have the mumbly Joaquin Phoenix kind of performance, I mean, that probably compounds the problem. Interstellar, I mean, you you may or may not have read that that's kind of a, a... like a widespread controversy right. to the point where Nolan's had to address it. Um, I, I mean, I, in that film, it felt like there were lines that like the, the wisecracking robot was supposed to be making me laugh at. That I could make out what that thing was saying. I, see, this so is I, a problem I commonly have in theaters just because of my hearing loss. So yeah. it's it, it can often be hard for me to determine what the problem is. But for example, like I, I, I actually did like Interstellar. Um, yeah. It helped to not have any hype going into it. Like I already knew that opinion was divided and I had seen no trailers and had no expectations for what it was other than a yeah. space movie. Um, mm-hmm. So I just sort of enjoyed it as entertainment and as having a sort of an, a, an interesting stripped down approach to the kind of uh, epic story it's telling. But like yeah. there <laughs> – there are parts of it, like like the whole ending. I don't understand. I don't know what the last words spoken in the film were, and so yeah. the ending is him flying off to Anne Hathaway somewhere for some reason. Right. Like I honestly had no clue, and it was stuff like that that was just really <laughs> like frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. So I I enjoyed Interstellar for what it was. Like I. I that one, I went in with a little bit of hope because actually, since we're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, I saw him do a uh, kind of like a like a sort of a class kind of thing, like where he was showing different clips of things that inspired him. Yeah. Uh, the next day, and uh, he didn't show a clip from Interstellar, but he said, you know, I've seen it, and uh, you know, just spend the money to see it uh, in IMAX. Don't fuck around. It's great. Like he was like he was really emphatic, like that we should all check it out. Yeah. Um, but so I went in, you know, and I think Tarantino also made some kind of comments on it. But maybe they just all like one another's work because they're all shooting on film still. I don't know. Sure. Like, uh, it's like you know those cellular guys got to stick together. But uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I I appreciated that he wasn't uh, he wasn't dumbing it down appreciably. I mean, it, it it gets a little it gets a little sentimental the way gravity gets sentimental in that, you know, as they're trying to wrap it all up in a way that makes it approachable. But for the most part, I didn't feel like I was being condescended. To. Yeah. Like it was for, for a PG 13 film that could bring families in. It didn't feel like it was trying to make it so the nine year old would understand everything. Right. Um, so I appreciate it. Cause we talked about Nolan a little bit on the rogue episode where I was thinking like with that Batman success, he could probably make anything he wants. And this is this feels like something that's coming from him, 
Um, and I appreciate that, like, he's trying to make something that is smart, but also operating on a, on a large scale. It's, that's hard to do. Um, so I, I don't know. I would like to see it again, knowing where everything goes yeah. to be able to put it together. Same with Inherent Vice, because I, it's funny, when that, when the reviews started coming out, there was all these kind of concerned kind of think pieces like, oh, Inherent Vice is not going to win over America. Oh, it's not going to win Oscars. <laughs> oh, what what are we going to do about Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson? It, it's like, it, it's so funny, like that people are that protective about that film, but, you know, I, I have no idea. I feel like I'll be very surprised if audiences, if that opens wide, I'll be very surprised if audiences don't give it like an F, yeah, like yeah. The, the the mainstream. Sure. Um, but I, I'm dying to see what you and Jim make of it. Uh, I, 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 am, Jim, I have very tempered expectations. I know Jim is through the roof. He can't wait. Yeah, I know. He he asked that I call him after I left the screening because I tried to get him to fly out to see Paul. I got uh-huh. him a ticket to see Paul Thomas Henderson talk. Wow. Um, but he couldn't, he couldn't make it out. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it might be the best film at the New York Film Festival that I saw. I saw a lot of good stuff. Um, I'm hoping it all comes out in America. Because right. I, like, I saw this film called Eden about um, French house music in the 1990s. <laughs> so I, I mean, it's not anything special, but I really liked it a lot. I hope that it gets a release here. Um, as, far as, as, but, as far as Paul Thomas Anderson goes, um, mm-hmm. in preparing for that episode, ap- that episode and just sort of sitting with uh, the master. I've just sort yeah. of come to the conclusion that I think he's a much better director than he is a screenwriter. Um, mm. I, I really like, especially Boogie Nights. I think, I, I don't, I don't think Heart Eight is a particularly celebrated film. So the fact that I think that movie's not very good is not, you know, isn't necessarily going against the grain. But I think Boogie Nights is, is like, it's not a well written film. I think it's super repetitive. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, Boogie Nights is the one I get the most basic pleasure from. Yeah. I, I, I think he's a great director, but I just – I'm just really not into him as a writer. And I I don't know. I'm like I'm – maybe him adapting something will shake – will force him to operate somewhere different. But like just – there yeah. will be blood and the master um, are both – astonishing movies that I don't have that much fondness for really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I, my least favorite one is, is there will be blood, but I still think that that's a fascinating film and I totally understand why people love it. I don't, I don't not like it. I mean, I, I enjoy, I've seen it like maybe three times and I enjoy it, but I enjoy talking about it or hearing people talk about it more than I enjoy watching it. Whereas Magnolia or Punch Drunk Love or Boogie Nights, I can put those on after a long day and get emotionally engaged by them. The Master, I, the Master, I love a lot, but it's 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 kind of like the version of There Will Be Blood that I like, and I don't know if that's just because I I'm not always crazy about period setting, <laughs> and even though Master is also period, I don't know. There's something there's just something different about it that I respond. I respond to that animalistic performance from Joaquin Phoenix yeah. more than I no, respond it's to. Yeah, there's there's not a single Paul Thomas Anderson movie I think is bad. I'm just just sort of talking about how he's regarded versus how I actually – I always just sort of take a – I now I'm just like I'm just going to take a few – I'm going to take my – I'm going to see what people are 
thinking when they respond to it, and then I'm going to just bring my expectation down a little lower than that, because that tends to be where I land on most of his films. Yeah, I mean, it's... You, I'll be curious to hear your take on it because you might not like it. Jim might not like it either. I mean, I I don't know. Also, the the other thing is uh, the the Solaris of books is the crying of lot for me is the crying of lot forty nine by Thomas Pynchon, which is apparently his most uh, accessible book. But I have never been able to get past the first two chapters of that book, and I I almost feel like Thomas Pynchon his writing style exists to troll people with ADHD. <laughs> like, like it's like the sentences are like, if you want to talk about Tarkovsky's shots going on for a long time, like, like Pynchon's uh, sentences go on for just punishingly long periods of time where uh, it's in, like, it's just impossible for me to keep in track in my head. What phrase is modifying what, you know? And so uh, I'm interested in the fact that it's an adaptation and maybe that, means that uh, it'll, it forces Paul Thomas Anderson to sort of go outside of his original. The other thing is, as with There Will Be Blood and The Master, mm-hmm. I think he, I think his, I mean, they're not, more so with The Master than There Will Be Blood. I won't say I 100% understand them, but mm-hmm. they. I think his attempts at profundity kind of, uh, are, I find irritating sometimes. Yeah, well, it's it's funny that you say that because someone else uh, on Facebook, a friend of mine, had a thread on one of his pages that was um, just about you know whether or not Paul Thomas Anderson was a smart thinker. I mean, whatever you think of him as a director, like as a, as a thinker, are any of this generation of directors intellectual, um, you know, intellectually daring? Uh, smart, you know, intellectual kind of voices. I mean, in the way that like a Godard would be. Yeah. Um, you think about Quentin Tarantino, or you think about Paul Thomas Anderson, or you think about I don't know who who would be that generation, like David O. Russell, or you know, like I mean, they Wes Anderson even. I mean, do we think of them as great filmmakers in terms of the the, the pictorial sense of it? But are their ideas really serious thinking ideas. I mean, and I, I don't know if American cinema really rewards that. I mean, someone, even someone like the Coen brothers who are clearly brilliant, like do, are, do they use their brilliance to make profound work? I mean, it's it probably depends on the film with them, but I mean, what is your take on that idea? Uh, they all, I don't know. It, it, that's hard to say because a, I am, I, you know, I, 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 that is the aspect of films that I often have a lot of, trouble discerning like i mean that's just that's why i don't really respond to Gennard that well that's why someone so many of tarkovsky's films are so yeah. opaque to me and it's just like well i mean i didn't go to college i'm not well read in the basic tenets of different philosophers i don't know yeah. Jungian archetypes from freudian archetypes like there's you know that's just that's just sort of not in my wheelhouse so it's hard for me to say i, I mean yeah. shane caruth <laughs> to me feels just like um not necessarily a great like philosophical, like his films don't feel like philosophically um, great to me, but his films feel considered in a way that isn't just like, like primer and memento kind of feel similar in that mm-hmm. they're both kind of very puzzling movies and the very structure of the movies right. um, are very challenging, but like, I think Christopher Nolan is very good at creating puzzles and he likes puzzles because 
audiences like that moment where everything clicks into place when that final piece goes down and suddenly you can see the picture. Um, right. And I don't think he creates, I don't think he's trying to create puzzles that are impossible to solve. I think he's trying to create puzzles that are capable of being solved because it, it sort of rewards active viewing, but at the same time, it doesn't challenge the audience that much. Um, right. He's not David Lynch. Right. Whereas Shane Carruth, you know, like, I don't know. Like, there's something about, uh, I mean, especially Upstream Color, that just feels like it's that, it's kind of a puzzling structure, but to such a different extent and with such a different purpose behind it. And I think, I don't know. I mean, Upstream Color is just also, one, like, probably my favorite movie in the last 10 years. So it's, yeah. it's hard to say. But, like, I don't know. Shane Carruth feels, uh, if not necessarily, quote unquote, a great thinker in terms of philosophy, like as a philosopher, he seems like mm-hmm. the most intelligent filmmaker working, uh, like young filmmaker sort of working today. Yeah, I, I, I could see that argument being made for sure. Um, try to think, is there anything else that you wanted to go over? I think we're at the I don't know. two hour, 20 uh, pe- minute People, mark. in case they hadn't heard already, people should see Coherence. Speaking of puzzles. Yes, I, yeah, no, I thought Coherence was really good. Um, I saw that with Jim, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coherence is great. Um, did you see, um, uh, what's it called, uh, Listen Up, Philip? Um, no, uh, Regina did, though. Regina thought it was great. Regina yeah. saw a screening with a Q&A of, uh, with uh, Jason Schwartzman. Unfortunately, I had to work, so. Oh, yeah, well, that's on demand now. That was actually at the festival, uh, New York Film Festival, but it's on demand, uh, Amazon Instant and things like that now. Yeah, I definitely plan on uh, well, seeing I, that one. Yeah, well, it's funny because, um, you know, like a film like uh, Margot at the Wedding, like that kind of like really mean-spirited style of, uh, of Noah Baumbach's yeah. films. This feels like the last word in that kind really? of filmmaking. Like it's just everyone's Like that Margot at the Wedding, that kind of Greenberg yeah, like it almost feels like I think we talked about this maybe uh, once. Like I feel like every once in a while, like like a little subgenre will emerge, and then the most extreme example will kill off the trend. Uh-huh. So like say like with the um, say like with the post Boys in the Hood kind of like urban crime films, and Menace to Society was the most extreme stylized example, and then they just stopped making them, or like um, like certain kind of gross out comedies, and then. Freddie Got Fingered was the most extreme you could probably get into a theater, and then they just stopped making them. Um, I, it, maybe it's my imagination. It just feels like every, every kind of trend that's like a little micro-trend, like some definitive thing will come along that will just be the most extreme case, and so no one bothers after uh-huh. that. Um, this feels like the old style of Baumbach film, there's nowhere else to go with it, because you, it, this is an unrelentingly jerky group of people. Well, I mean, I love Noah Baumbach's last film. And oh, I, I love all of them. But I mean, and, yeah, and I, but, but one of the things I loved about it was it seemed like he was moving away from that. Like Greenberg felt nastier than the ones that came before it. I mean, I like, I think Squid and the Whale, because it's about children, it gets away with it more yeah. um, because it's just sort of about this bewildering time in these children's lives. Um, yeah. And I, I think Squid and the Whale is great. But then every movie after that, it seemed like it was, it was it was less cogent and less funny, and it was just get got a little meaner and a little sadder. Um, yeah, and I mean, I still like Margot at the Wedding. I like Greenberg. 
I think Ben Stiller is really good in Greenberg. But then, like, once Francis Ha came along, there's still definitely that sharp edge to it, but it's also actually genuinely cares about its character, and you you and it has that ending that you know that you you it's 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 a feel good ending without actually being kind of a bullshit happy ending. Right. Um, oh yeah, no. I it's my it's my it was my favorite film of the year when it came out, and I think it's it's probably his best film. Yeah. So like, um, I'm if if this app if listen up, Philip is the ultimate expression of it. I'm glad that uh, Bombach has already decided to sort of move away from there. Yeah. No, well, I'm I I don't I don't I won't spoil anything in it. I would say that it's like a um, it's also like a very sour cousin to Rushmore in some really obvious ways. Not not the least being the casting of of Jason Schwartzman. Um, but it 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 feels like it takes all of the most rude, um, uh, narcissistic kind of characters of you know the Wes Anderson Noah Baumbach kind of style and then just. It takes it to the logical end point. Um, so yeah, I'm, and it does have some really powerful performances. It's a kind of if someone has an aversion to those kind of films, I mean, this is the film that would make them want to run into traffic. It's sure. the most extreme version of it. Sure, but um, yeah, I, I'm curious to hear your take I, on that when you do I, catch I, up. With I it. definitely need to see that movie, so I'll, I'll be watching that for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Tarkovsky. Uh, so Tarkovsky. Um, yeah, as predicted, this was a, a more difficult episode as far as the director end, just because it's so hard. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have very clear academic ideas of what the mirror means and what yeah. Solaris means, and you know, and not you know that that is. I'm sure that's a very you know that's one way of watching uh, his films, and those people yeah. could have you know, talked for, you know, 10 hours about the symbolism uh, and, and the meaning behind uh, there. Wait, there was one moment in Solaris I wanted to mention. Oh, it was, it was this, it's this moment at the birthday party where he yes. has his speech and it's, it's this thing that happens to me at Tarkovsky movies where like, I find, you know, not unsubstantial, you know, portions of them to be kind of dull and then this moment will happen and it will cut right to the heart of me and i will and i will be wide-eyed and go yes holy shit and this is everything and then it will sort of drift away from that again yeah yeah. and yeah. there was this speech that the that the person whose birthday it was was giving about like man doesn't mankind doesn't want to explore space mankind wants to bring earth to space uh like we don't we don't need I I forget we don't we don't need science we need a mirror or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's yeah. I I have the quote written down actually. Um, hold on, what is it? We don't we don't need other worlds. We need mirrors. Yeah, like <laughs> it's. I mean, it's. I've I've never thought about it in those terms. But as far as just, I mean, one of the reasons I was actually surprised I liked Interstellar at all is because I really I have zero interest in space travel. It. To a certain extent, Interstellar is kind of pro-NASA propaganda <laughs> mm-hmm. um, about sort of why funding should not be cut from NASA. And on that level, I disagree with it because I don't – I find – I don't think uh, – I, I don't I, – I just – I don't find space travel interesting at all. I don't find it important. I don't think we're ever going to leave Earth as, as a species. Um, and it's one of those things that 
I never, other than just being a cynical asshole, I never really had uh, well thought out reasons why. That's just sort of how I felt about it and why I didn't really, I don't really find awe in space travel. Mm-hmm. And then when I sort of, and then that, that, that line sort of just cut right to the heart of it for me. Because part of the concept of space travel is this Gene Roddenberry idea is that, well, what, what is out there is a perfect society. Um, is this perfect egalitarian, uh, egalitarian. egalitarian society where, you know, there, there's no racial divides, there's no national divides and there's no money and everyone just works and, you know, and like, it's this idea of the Federation and it's like, well, I mean, if we got in space, that would happen. And it, I don't believe that to be true. I think it would just like, it would be the same old fucking bullshit. I think you, you can't pretend that going out into space would like, I mean, even in interstellar, like once they get to that little station orbiting Saturn, it's just this perfect little society. Um, you know, like there's, there's no hint of problem. It's just like, wow, it's it, utopia. has finally been reached and it must be out there. Cause clearly earth, there's no utopia, but you know, earth, we have that hit. You know what? We need a clean start. It's like this person who's in a bad relationship, like <laughs> a humans and earth is like a person in a bad relationship. And they're like, you know what? I just need a clean start. I need to do, you know what I need to do? I need to just find myself. And then next relationship I have is going to be great. But really they, it's the problem, the problems they're bringing, they had to the last one, they're going to be bringing to this one as well. And, right. <laughs> and like that, that whole speech in Solaris kind of felt like, I mean, that's not necessarily what that's about. Um, right. It's not an anti NASA or anti cosmonaut, sort of uh propaganda speech but that kind of cuts the heart of my skepticism over the importance of space travel well even the way that he depicts the environments i mean you think about how rich and vibrant the the earth or whatever planet we're on you know versus the sterile kind of cold environment of the space station like it's definitely creating a feeling in the viewer that yeah, this is this is not where it's at. Like, we need to be back, you know, with horses and things. Like, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We should we shouldn't be, you know, in this cold sterile environment, you know, hanging out with dwarves in little rooms. Like we, <laughs> you know, it, it it there's there is like an implicit. I don't like I don't want to say anti science or anti space travel, but yeah, I, I don't think that the message is it, it, it's probably quite the opposite of Interstellar's, which is very much pro. Space travel. Or, two, or 2001, pro. which is like, well, basically everything that happened on Earth from looking up at the sky and getting to the sky was bullshit. So we're going to omit that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, it's funny. I, I just saw um, Jean-Pierre Junet's new film, The uh, the Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet. I'm not sure if it's going to have a, I don't know when the U.S. release is coming. It's out everywhere else. Is it, how has he, how has he been? How's how how is Yune? I haven't talked to him in so long. You well, it's funny because it's like his straight story. Oh, really? <laughs> like it's like it's. I mean, it's like it's like a uh, English language Americana kind of uh, film. Uh, it's like a children's film. Uh, it's got some actors that you know we would know, like uh, Judy Davis is in it, and Helena Bonham Carter is in it, but. For the most part, it's not populated with big stars. I haven't seen uh, the film he did before that, Nick Max. I don't know what happened with his distribution if they just don't i think after a very long engagement didn't really connect he just like fuck it like i I don't know like he's he's so big in other countries like you know france or whatever like i don't think he needs u.s hits yeah uh um because this had like a 30 million dollar budget like it definitely looks i mean it looks gorgeous i don't know i mean 
I don't, it doesn't feel like it has any real connection to, you know, Delicatessen and City of Lost Children, like that early kind of Gilliam kind of cyberpunkish kind of thing. Like this feels more like, it feels more like a cousin to Michel Gondry, like that kind of uh, whimsy kind of thing. Um, that kind of playful, over-directed, clever French whimsy thing. Like, did you see right. Mood Indigo? No, I did not see Mood Indigo. Mood Indigo was like that too, but it's. I I also understand that that was like cut down for the U.S. version. I need. Um, I need. I, I need. I need Gondry to just make documentaries. <laughs> see, I haven't seen his documentary work at all. You, you I, haven't I, seen I feel, Dave Chappelle's Black well, Party. Well, well, no, 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 no. I take that back. Dave Chappelle's Block Party is my favorite film he's made. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I haven't seen like the uh, the Noam Chomsky film, and then the one with like was he do, do one with like children, um, like any of that that any of that post Eternal Sunshine documentary work I've not seen. Uh, is the man who is tall happy is definitely worth seeing. Not I mean none of it is as good as Eternal Sunshine or uh, Science of Sleep, but I I think <laughs> I think him like I think outside of, like. I I I I don't think a, he his big skill is narrative. Uh, and no. I think, but I think him inserting himself and his whimsy into something that has the in the uh, sort of restrictions as a nonfiction film does. I think that yeah. it's like a welcome jolt of personality, especially just in the world of documentaries where less and less personality, like everything is just sort of being flattened. To look like just television. Yeah, I mean, Errol Morris can't keep making films forever, so it's, right. it's gonna gonna have to be some new voices. I don't know. I mean, with Mood Indigo, I'd like to see the uncut version, but watching it, I saw it. It played in Philly for like a couple of weeks. Uh, it it. <sighs> It, it might be his ultimate statement for like that kind of like manic whimsy kind of, I mean, it's, it's such a virtuoso showpiece for what he does, but what he does, it's not really my thing. Like I, I can appreciate the ingenuity, but it's like, it's too cute for yeah. me. Like I like, I like the melancholy undercurrent that Wes Anderson's cute films have that keeps them from being just, just, I mean, that's where science of sleep, I, I like Science of Sleep, but that's where I missed Kauf, Charlie Kaufman's kind of sad sack undercurrent. Oh, really? Uh, I think to, I think Science of Sleep is the saddest movie. Yeah, well, maybe. Well, I take that back because yeah, it, it it finds it, but maybe in the first half. Oh, sure, sure, bit, sure. It was a little bit much for me at first, but by the end, it won me over. I think at I least, think, I've only seen it the one I time. Think, yeah, I, I think I, knowing where it goes, there's sort of a there's sort of an undercurrent of self loathing to Gail Garcia's manic uh, uh, sort of performance that yeah. that um, that sort of makes it more palatable. I remember the first time I saw Science of Sleep, I didn't really dig it. I was just like, this is a little irritating, and now this is sad. <laughs> that was yeah. man, that, that was not a very – but then like sort of knowing where it goes, I, I think it works better. Yeah, well, we talk, I mean, I remember when you were talking about uh, Miranda July's The Future also, and, like, that also undercuts the whimsy with, like, this really yeah. hard oh my God, yeah. kind of... And I think that that's, for my taste, that's necessary. And, and Mood Indigo has that also, but it's just, I don't know, on some level, like, we're talking about, like, intellectual seriousness in, in American films, and, you know, you know, some, like, Caruth maybe being a good example, but, like, there's also this this kind of segment of the art film kind of thing that is aimed at like 
20-somethings that don't want to grow up, right. and so they want things that are childish, yeah. but but are also rated R. I, I wouldn't and, mind, like, a super whimsical movie that is explicitly for children if the style, if, like, the aesthetic was, like, completely anarchic. Like, have you, have you ever right. seen A Town Called Panic? I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Like, that movie, I couldn't get through it, but, like, I really respected what that movie was doing, where it's basically stop-motion toys, and it's, like, the two most hyperactive children <laughs> You never see it because it's all stop motion, but right. like it's basically just watching the two most hyperactive children play with their toys and like invent stories, and it just spirals through everything so fast, and it's so fevered, and it's and it's really funny. But it, it I mean, it was very tiring, so I didn't end up finishing it. But like that sort of thing, like I don't need it undercut with sadness, but anything that expects me to have like a modicum of uh, a sort of. Uh, uh, interest in its actual like characters as human beings. Mm-hmm. And I, I need that. Did you see the Lego movie? Yeah, I did. Is it good? Um, it is funny. It okay. is the it's so it's like the guys who did Twenty One Jump Street, and mm-hmm. they and they did like Clone High, and it has like genuinely sort of absurd humor, and it's just it's just funny. And but the actual story of it's weird because the story of it is. Number one, the story of it, it's it's anti it's anti Lego because everything about the Lego Corporation over the past like ten to twenty years has just been about buy the new Harry Potter playset, buy this new play like whereas right. the actual movie is about sort of the joy of not of like well fuck it I'm gonna put the cops in with the medieval castles and there's going to be a space alien and that's why like this is the movie where you know Batman and all these other people are all in the same thing and it's because it's a there, there's sort of a meta story that's going on um about sort of what the story is so in mm-hmm. that way it's kind of like subversive but on the other hand it is literally just another fucking three act structure hero's journey of you're just an everyday schlub no you're not you're the greatest schlub ever now go out and do your thing and that and and you doing your thing is what makes you a vital part like pretty much every children's movie ever <laughs> like yeah. at this point that, is like not ever but every children's movie that comes out now which is just like uh you may be an outcast but that being an outcast what makes you special being special is what's going to help save the world and <laughs> it's so like it's kind of tiring in that way um yeah yeah, I because as the, as the year winds down and I start looking at all the lists of the what are the you know quote unquote important films and I try to catch everything that I can. I, I that's that one and Guardians of the Galaxy are like probably two that I'm going to see out of an out of a sense of obligation yeah. to have a sense of what the zeitgeist was because you know my my list of favorites is probably not going to be indicative of what the top twenty highest grossing yeah. films of the year are, but I, I do want to know what you know what yeah. culturally where, where we're at. And I'm just, that one is you know, on my radar. I remember, uh, I, it's probably out on Blu-ray by now, I would think. But, yep. Yeah. I got um, it from Redbox. It's, it's funny. That's, that's the thing that saves it from being completely irritating. Uh, yeah. and if you have a different sense of humor than me, then that might not save it, but you're definitely, Maybe. it's I mean, not actually yeah. like it play, it pays lip service to the idea of children's play being freewheeling and fun and, not being reined in by the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that its screenplay is just the same as every other children's movie, which is just the same as every superhero movie, which is just the same as everything since Star Wars, <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it really makes it seem insincere. Did you see Nightcrawler? Um, no, that's the next one I got to see. 
I'm really interested yeah. in that. It's, yeah, I won't spoil anything, but I, I thought that was really remarkable. Um, and, yeah, I... I, I, I won't spoil it. I, I, Jim had told me uh, to check it out before I saw it. I, it was already on my radar anyway, but uh, I think that's I think that's a really remarkable film. Uh, it, in a way, it's almost kind of like a flip side to Drive. Um, but I don't. Know what, I can't really talk about it more without. It's better if, if you go in knowing less. I don't know how much you know. Sure. But, um, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. If there's anything else that i was gonna mention did you see birdman no birdman yeah, birdman too as, as well i need to see um i'm not a big fan of that director though so it's nothing like his other films it, it's actually closer um it's actually closer to paul thomas anderson's old films than inherent vices really oh yeah like it's it kind of feels like magnolia kind of because it, it has like these like long unbroken shots that follow the characters around and the performances get real big and like everyone has their Oscar moment kind of thing, but it's also pitched more as a comedy maybe than, than Paul Thomas Anderson's films uh, would have been. But it's, it feels like, it feels like just a light romp in a Uh way. I don't know. I saw it, it was the last film at the film festival and it was such it was such an energetic high of a film. I mean, I've seen some real hyperbolic reviews that kind of, like I don't know, but it's like a great, great film. But it's 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 fun. You can you get a sense of the actors enjoying themselves in it. Um, Michael Keaton, um, it's one of his best performances for sure. And even someone like Edward Norton, who I think um, is one of the most peculiar careers <laughs> uh, because of I think I think both him and Adrian Brody. And this is a total sidetrack. I, I feel like maybe they're not easy to work with as people and that might have fucked up their careers a little bit um, because it just seems like the biggest waste of talent with both of them. If you look at their resumes, as far as what they're capable of and what they actually do. Um, and I don't know why. Um, I mean, Edward Norton always has a good film, you know, come out every couple of years, but I don't know. It, it just seems like, I don't know. I've heard he's, he's kind of, uh, he, he, but he, he's great in this. Um, Everybody is really good, and Naomi Watts, uh, Emma Stone. Um, I don't know. I think I think you know. I think you'll enjoy it. It's 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 a light it's a light thing. It's it's a, it's a third film I saw at that festival that has movie stars playing movie stars taking digs at Hollywood. Yeah, because the Cronenberg film uh, Maps to the Stars is like that, and um, uh. What is his name? Uh, the, the Clouds of Sils Maria. Um, what is that guy's name? Uh, Asias is the French director who did Carlos, that Carlos the Jackal film. Oh, right, film. right, right, yeah. Um, his new film, it's Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. That also has a lot of shots at Hollywood. They're pretty funny. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, but part of, part of, I, Part of the reason I never watch movie trailers anymore, and I must admit I did watch the Birdman trailer because everyone was raving about the Birdman trailer, the one with uh, scored to Narles Barkley. But part of the reason I never watch movie trailers anymore or read any movie news is mm-hmm. because I hate that hype could – like I, I hate the idea that a fun, energetic movie like it sounds like Birdman is could get mm-hmm. destroyed by like – people getting too excited about it and being, and then like suddenly you have to talk about it as well. Is it top 10 of the year? Is it an Oscar contender? Like, whereas it yeah. almost, it almost sounds like it was never meant to be something like that. It just, the hype machine got out of control or something. 
Yeah, and it's funny because like um, that ruins films even that I like sometimes. Like I have to unlearn that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I saw her the uh, at the New York Film Festival uh, last mm-hmm. year, and I enjoyed it. But then I started seeing all this stuff in the press. Like it's not only the best film of this year, it's <laughs> the best film of the last five yeah. years. And I'm like, the, are you best science, the, like, the, <laughs> the, the phrase best science fiction film. Like they then they start qualifying it even more. Like it's the best. Best science fiction film of the past ten years, and it's like it's yeah. it's the best Spike Jones movie. So like, yeah, and it's like that kind of hyperbole. Even if you like a film, it makes you crazy because then you're yeah. like, you then you get like a knee jerk. And I mean, like you know, p- people you know that are you know have cultured taste in film are always guilty of this kind of thing. And I mean, it's the, the same kind of like punk rock kind of like contrarianism. You know, it's it just seems to like always. I don't know if people ever really kind of outgrow that kind of reaction. I, and I, the, I think it's gotten way, way worse in the past like five years as far as the internet echo chamber sort of having backlash and then back. And then it's like, well, it's like, well, then this critic screening Twitter went crazy because everyone stepped out of Birdman and said this. And then that made the people who had seen it before be louder about not liking it. And then like, I think, I think that sort of fevered back and forth is has just gotten worse and then suddenly it's like well now you have to have an opinion on it and everyone was like oh my god interst like when i said i i walked out of interstellar and i tweeted like eh, just see all interstellar that's a really good movie and then i was yeah. like oh i'm so surprised that you like it it's it's you know, like it's like oh i can't wait to hear your take on it and i'm like i don't know why i have a take on it i think it's an entertaining film it's you know like i yeah I, I'm, I'm not like well here's why interstellar is the is the rosetta stone for christopher nolan's career or where the hollywood blockbuster right. is right now like it's just i think it's a good movie and yeah and well, not going into it with any expectations other than um well it's well, it's uh, it's divisive, so it's probably not going to be one of Christopher Nolan's best movies. <laughs> and it started its life as a Steven Spielberg project, so it's going to probably have a little bit of that flavor to it. And I went in and I was like, oh, yeah, no, I, I, saw, I see both those things. I like it. Yeah, well, it's funny because, like, yeah, there were definitely, like, think pieces along the inherent vice lines for Interstellar. Also, it's like, oh, no, it's not a masterpiece. Yeah. Here, here's the sad report. You know, it's just like, well, you know, he's following up. The Dark Knight Rises, which has got problems, like, like he's, you know, I, I think it's a step up from the last couple of things he's done. You know, I think it's, I think it's probably my favorite thing he's done since Memento. But it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's so hard to judge any film on the first viewing, especially with that kind of baggage. Yeah. I think that, like, we won't be able to see any of these films clearly until a year from now, probably. Sure. But, like, Inherent Vice, you know... It's going to have the same problem, and people are going to want to take positions on it. And it becomes kind of exhausting where it's like things are good until they suck. You know, like Boyhood goes through the same thing, or Gone Girl goes through the same thing, or uh, I haven't really seen that so much with Snowpiercer because not enough people saw it. But, like, you know, all the hyped films become – they either become masterpieces or they become, like, overrated and then yeah. therefore bad. I, I, like, well, I, think the, I think the message here – is you should only listen to film podcasts that cover old films, uh, and that way right, you right. never have to worry about getting involved with the hype machine. Uh, DirectorsClubPodcast.com. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Assum- assuming we can articulate what they're Yeah, about. No, that's true. This episode may not the best example, but yeah. That is the nice thing. Like I realized – um, when I went to see Interstellar, I was like, so what was the last 2014 movie I saw in theaters? Um, 
that was just like a regular release. And the last 2014 movies I had seen in theaters was part of the one of the horror film festivals I went to. There was Dead Snow 2. And which uh-huh. was, you know, that's just Dead Snow 2. Whatever. It was, it was fun. Um, and then – but then before that, it was Guardians of the Galaxy. And it had just been months and months since I had been in the theaters and been part of the quote-unquote conversation of a new movie that had come out. And 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 I was just like, oh, wow, what have I been doing all this time? And I thought back about all the really, really good movies I saw and I was like, oh, I don't miss that at all. <laughs> like like I, I, yeah. I felt like kind of ashamed at first. Like I should – like I, oh, I need to go to theaters. Like I, how could I? It's like, no, no, I was fine. I was good. Yeah. Well, I, I envy, you know, whenever you do a director that I'm a big fan of, like, I envy you getting to see Walkabout for the sure, first time. Sure, Or Ivan's Childhood for the first time or whatever. Like, like I know, I, I, can, I, I mean, sometimes you, you, you know, I mean, everyone's taste is different, but I, I you know, when you have certain, I, but Benko, I think if you had done it, um, Pichot would have been the one that you would have been excited about. Yeah. Um, if you ever do, I, I, I don't know how easy to see that one is. It, I feel like it's that one, that was part of the while. problem was I couldn't get a grasp on like what his career, what the important films were. And I couldn't get a grasp on how watchable those films would be. Yeah. Well, the, the, the two that I would think that you would definitely want to see at least once, uh, would be kiss of the spider woman and Pichot. Yeah. and kiss of the spider woman. I haven't seen in so long. You might, you might really hate it. I can't remember. I, I feel like that film at the time was a big deal and kind of a little bit foggy on what it was even about anymore. Uh, I, 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 I know it had like a, a gay element and like a prison element and it was kind of like stagey, but uh, it, it really, it's like fragments <laughs> you just, you of a just, memory. You just basically, yeah, you just basically nailed the synopsis, which is like uh, two prisoners, one a political prisoner, one a gay prisoner. Uh, yeah. I, it was like based on a play. Yeah, I have the I have the novel, and I started reading it, and but I never. It was one of those books I I picked up for a long train ride, and then once I got to my destination, I never picked it back up again. So, um, yeah, I think that was it was actually the fact that it was a the fact that he wasn't a white man, um, right. and b that uh, b that it, that he had did the version of Kiss of the Spider Woman's what I wanted to do him, but I don't know. I'll figure yeah. something else out. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff coming. Uh, speaking of directors, how about we just go ahead and wrap this up? Can you name a top sure. three Tarkovsky films? Sure, sure. My top three. Uh, number one would be Mirror. Uh-huh. Uh, number two would be uh, Nostalgia. Uh-huh. Nostalgia. And uh, three would be Stalker. Yeah. My number one would be Ivan's Childhood. My number two would be Mirror. And then uh, my number three would be Solaris, since those are, those are the three I saw. <laughs> well, those are three good yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, fortune teller once said he only had seven in them, but they'd be all masterpieces. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, some day, we don't have to do the top three rogue this time, but one day we'll do that. The top three rogue? <laughs> yeah, we didn't do that for the rogue That's episode. right. That episode's too weird. I don't know. I had yeah. a, I had a half a mind because it was a Tarkovsky episode to release this totally unedited without any music. Yes. Like this is just a sound file that will just abruptly cut off <laughs> and and yeah. abruptly started. Um <laughs> in honor of the long take master uh, Andre Tarkovsky. Bill, well, can, can you tell yeah. me about the blog that you uh, should have coming up soon? Yeah, um it's going to be hold on, let me let me find the 
address here one second here. Um, okay, well, it's going to be a tourist trap dot blogspot dot com. A u t e u r i s t t r a p dot blogspot dot com. Ah, auteur yes. like an auteur, an auteurist trap. Yes. All right. Yes. Very clever. Um, and uh, actually, I don't know if anyone buys zines, um, you know, just blindly. But um, I, I wrote some uh, articles in the, or essays in the new uh, issue of Lunch Meat. Uh, it's a mostly horror, but it's just it deals with films that only have video cassette releases. Um, and you can find uh, that magazine at www.lunchmeatvhs.com. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote about some old horror movies <laughs> that have no DVD release yet. Uh, like what? Uh, I wrote about uh, Fatal Games, which is a slasher movie uh, set on a college campus where people are being javelined to death. And um, I wrote about a film called Premonition that was one of the two kind of horror exploitation films that Alan Rudolph did before... Uh, kind of falling in with the Robert Altman camp and doing Welcome to L.A. and kind of rewriting his resume as that being his first film. Um, he did that, and he did a film called... Um, my favorite title is Barn of the Naked Dead. That's great. But it's also... Yeah, that's the best title, but it also is out as Terror Circus. I think Code Red put that out on DVD, but Premonition was the one I wrote about, and that's about like this hippie musician that smokes some uh, weed from a, you know, kind of a corrupt plant that like creates hallucinations and people start dying. It's, it's, it's an odd kind of hippie curio film. Very little horror happens in it, but what does happen is it's just very strange. It's, I don't know. I think you you read a few of my picks in that horror uh, list episode. Uh, I I picked a lot of 70s films that are a little bit arty, like Let's Get Jessica to Death or uh, Lamora, Child's Tale Supernatural. There's something about, like, horror films that, like, barely count as horror films, but they have, like, a kind of a a weird... I just really am drawn to that. And Premonition probably goes a little too far into, like, you know, just, you know, hippie rock and roll story. But I don't know. It's... It's a curious film. It's I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, it, it comes and goes from YouTube. Uh, and Fatal Games, if you want to see just a real generic slasher movie, um, and who doesn't, you know? That's well, on, it, uh... real real generic slasher movie, but one element is different. Is basically what the what the life of a slasher fan is like. Is like yeah. it's like well, no, this one was kind of unusual because it's a javelin, so uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> well, what's funny is the writers of Fatal Games. One of them is Luis Bunuel's son, and the other one is the son of Joseph Mankiewicz, the guy that did All About Eve. <laughs> so, so it's like, for no reason, like, why are these guys writing a, like a movie about a, a killer in a tracksuit, you know, massacring people on a campus? Yeah. But yet, there they were. I'm sure the parents were very proud. Um, I don't know. It's it's a pretty silly film, but it's you know it. That, it's funny because there are not a lot of slasher movies on your on your countdown no, list, there and weren't. I was actually very surprised. There wasn't even Friday Thirteenth. Uh, There's at all no Friday Thirteenth movies. There was only there was there was only Halloween uh, three, I think. Uh, Halloween two didn't get on there. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the Nightmare on Elm Streets are 
kind of slashery. Right. But, yeah. yeah. I I we're gonna do it again next year where every single film we mention was off limits. Yeah, I already have a top ten. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been thinking too, and there is actually like I have a pretty uh, good top ten. Um, especially if you allow the other interesting thing, there there are no short films on our list. Yeah, I can believe there was a documentary on there. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, we we allowed again, we allowed the listeners to just sort of define horror for themselves. So that was kind of yeah. the point. Um, speaking of which, by the way, I, I should say real quick, we were amazed that Drag Me to Hell didn't get a vote. It got two votes. I screwed up when I made the list. I know. Yeah, that was. I couldn't, yeah, because I Jim was one of the people that voted for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I screwed up. I, basically, I was I had a master list I was compiling, and then I put that list into Letterboxd so I'd be able to put it all in chronological order without driving myself nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was putting the master list into the, the Letterbox list, I screwed up and I did not include Drag Me to Hell. So that was how that all screwed up. Yeah, no, I love that film. I, I was happy to see that that Death Dream got a second vote besides my. Mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I one of the ones that you hadn't seen that I know Gabe recommends it to you in that podcast uh, that I voted for was Alice Sweet Alice. Yeah, and I think that you would really like that one a lot. I, I, I start and I that. and I started to watch Let's Scare Jessica to Death, and I had to go to work and I couldn't finish it. And then by the time I got home from work, I was doing other things, and now it's been like a week, so I have to just rewatch it from the beginning. But that's got a fun. Yeah. That's got a fun vibe to it. That what you said about barely a horror movie that almost kind of qualifies there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought what Gabe was saying about it as being like a new Hollywood take on Carnival of Souls was really a, a kind of right on the money. I mean, that is kind of what it's like. Yeah. Um, actually, because I know that you love Carnival of Souls, another film that is kind of not in the same league as Let's Go Just Get a Death or Carnival of Souls, but in that same ballpark that you might like if you ever cross paths with a film called soul survivor okay it's like early 80s there's a bunch of films with titles that are like yeah that. is it are is uh, it s-o-l-e or s-o-u-l s-o-l-e okay um if anything yeah it's it's kind of like carnival of souls meets a foreshadowing of final destination i guess but it's like a low budget kind of arty like not, not super arty, not as arty as Let's Get Jessica to Death, but like that that kind of thing with like, you know, a woman that survives something, you know, that should be fatal and she's seeing dead people. It's it's not like the most original film, but it has like a, it has a uh, kind of an eerie quality that is not a million miles removed from those films that yeah, it's worth a watch if you ever cross paths with it. It's like 1982 or three, I think. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. Alright, cool. Well, um, yeah. That's autoristrap.blogspot.com is where you can find uh, Bill Ackerman's blog going up. Are you going to be mostly writing about directors or is that just uh, sort of a catch-all title? Yeah, no, no, I probably will. I mean, I think the... um the first thing that's going to be going up is is my write up on the uh, the New York Film Festival. I saw like uh, eighteen or nineteen films. So I'm trying to write my just condensed thoughts on those, and then I have a few other essays that I need to find a home for. So uh, it will be mostly director centric, uh, but I don't know if everything is going to be just about individual filmmakers yet or not. But th- I mean, this list will not be. But I mean. This will just be a rundown of what I saw. Sure. And then I'm going to probably be writing something about everything I've seen this year, which, you know, I don't know. But it, mostly that I will be writing things that are focused on individual directors like the title suggests. <laughs> cool. 
Um, yeah. You can find us, directorsclubpodcast.com. You can send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, hey, what are your thoughts on Tarkovsky? What, what, uh, of, all the, of all the things you could say about his films, what did, what did we forget? What did we leave out? Um, how much sense lot. does the ending of Solaris make to you? Um, let us know. Directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd at Patrick Rapol. Jim is on Letterboxd at Instant Jim. Um, Jim will be uh, returning for the Robert Altman episode at the end of the year. Um, yeah. Until then, we're going to be sort of mixing it up a bit. I know at the very least the next episode will not be Hector Babenko. It will be uh, a couple different uh, bonus episodes. I have some ideas. Maybe we'll do uh, the first Actors Club episode where I watch a bunch of films uh, by an actor. Um, mm. I was thinking about – I've been reading a ton this year. So I was thinking about uh, doing an adaptation uh, episode where I watch a bunch of movies that are adaptations of books I've read this year. Mm. Um, That's good. Yeah. So uh, we, we got some stuff headed up. The next uh, actual director's episode, it might be Stanley Donan or it might be Robert Altman depending on how much fun I have not preparing. <laughs> yeah. I mean as much Stanley. as I want to see Stanley Donan because I haven't seen any of his films and it, that's a travesty as someone who oh. is a self-proclaimed fan of musicals. Well, yeah. Well, Two for the Road uh, is him and uh, Charade. Uh, those are two I think you probably would really like. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that will be the next episode. Um, Somewhere, one of your listeners is a really big Babenko fan and is really yeah. upset right oh now. Oh my god, he thought he found it too. He was like, holy fuck. Like, this podcast has everything. It has the two things yeah. I like. It has two people, they don't really know what they're talking about, and they're kind yeah. of pretentious, and, they, and the podcasts are way too long. But it has parody songs, and it has Hector Babenko. And then he listened to this episode that didn't have any parody songs, and he found out that Hector <laughs> Babenko would not be covered the next episode. No! Uh, yeah, somebody, so somebody somewhere watched all the films preparing yeah. to listen along. And yeah, that person he, is he fucking went on. He went to the black market in South America to get like the the South America only VHS releases of some of Babenko's early work, um, and uh, and then uh, screwed him over like that. I'm sorry, dude, or or lady, uh, or no yes. gender at all. I, it could be it could yeah. be a gender queer person who's pissed at me. There's so many people who could be pissed I mean, at me right why, now. Why, yeah. Why not limit it now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The whole world could be pissed at me. Um, So uh, until next time, uh, I'm Patrick Rapole saying, I love you, Jim. All right. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, think I'm going to end up cutting this down.